1: This is a story about someone named Lamar Knox. Lamar Knox is a gang member. He was a kid growing up in Southern California in the 1980s. And uh, like a lot of people in that era and in that place, he became a crip. Some people became blood. This fellow became a crip. He learned how to sell drugs. He learned how to gangbang. And then when he moved to Kingston, New York at the age of 18, he carried that same mentality with him. He would rob anybody he could find. He would sell drugs to anybody that he could find. He would rob drugs from anybody that he could find. Two years later, he's involved at a shootout in a shootout at a bar. Two men died. Three others were wounded, including him, including Lamar Knox. He was sentenced To 62 and a half years to life. Imagine that. 62 and a half years to life. And today, look, he doesn't run away from that at all. He takes full responsibility for his actions. He is still in prison. And he may never get out. He will be 82 years old when he sees a parole board. See, Bloods and Crips were new to New York prisons when... Lamar Knox started serving his sentence in the mid-90s. They were, there were, and still are, in prison, many more bloods. And he was often the only crip in a facility. His only concern as a crip outnumbered by bloods is survival. And he avoided all sorts of everyday activities to stay, stay, to stay safe. Once, he saw a guy go for a layup in a friendly game of basketball in prison. And when he landed, someone came up behind him and sliced his face with a razor. So Lamar Knox didn't play sports. On a few occasions, he saw men get stabbed while taking a shower in the yard. So he didn't shower outside. He refused to get caught slipping. He knew that violence would determine how much respect he was going to get in prison. But he never talked to anyone about his crime. Because, look, it's, I, after all, you can imagine it's pretty hard to live with taking a life. But he didn't have an outlet to be vulnerable. He kept it all in. And after a few trips to solitary confinement for fighting and refusing to follow orders, he made friends in prison and earned some respect. After about seven years. Imagine living this kind of tortured existence. Now, look, you take someone's life. I don't think anybody's going to feel too much sympathy for someone who's living a tortured existence. But after about seven years, he found a hobby, a cathartic hobby. He started crocheting. Imagine this. A crip gang member killed people, getting into fights, getting sent to solitary in fi- uh, confinement lives and dies, Uh, respect is measured in violence and fear. So afraid of being slashed in the face, he doesn't play sports. So afraid of being stabbed, he doesn't shower outside. He starts crocheting. And by the way, I'm always a little unclear, and I I could just look it up, so I'm not going to ask for calls on this, about the difference between crocheting and knitting. My grandmother did both. She was a, a master. Master seamstress, she uh, sewed well into her 90s, and um, she would crochet, and she would knit and make beautiful material. When I was a child, she made all my Halloween costumes from scratch. Really, just an incredibly talented woman. So this gang member starts crocheting, and he learned from, in his words, a pot-bellied, bald old man named Joe who was on his tier. He'd see this guy crocheting all the time and selling his finished work. And he asked him, Lamar Knox asked this guy to teach him. After he said yes, Lamar ordered about $60 worth of yarn and crochet hooks from a catalog. At first, as you might imagine, this big, tough, uh, black gang member, he was slightly embarrassed when that first order came. Crips don't crochet. Old women, like my grandmother, old women in rocking chairs do. When people saw him carrying his yarn from the package room to his cell block, they asked what the crochet man was making for him. And he didn't confirm, he didn't deny why he had the materials. Picture this. A 240-pound, 6-foot, 27-year-old black crip crocheting in his cell. That was him. And he would cover the front bars of the cell with a dark sheet to prevent other prisoners from seeing him. This worked for a while until one of his friends knocked his curtain down. He probably thought he was smoking weed in there or something. He was known for doing that at the time. When he saw this guy crocheting, he burst into laughter and shook his head. He wasn't the only friend that teased him. Peer pressure exists in prison also. And he laughed along with his friends and he kept on crocheting. Soon he realized that if his work was good enough, he could sell these items for a profit. Prisoners paid him with cigarettes and some commissary goods. Prices varied depending on the customer. A friend got the what uh, Lamar Knox characterized as the homeboy price. Others got the going rate. A baby hat, scarf, and mitten set went for fifty dollars. A pillow with a name crocheted in the pattern, sold for $40. The price for a stuffed animal or doll was determined by the size of it. He didn't sell everything he made. A lot of the guys suffered from mental illness, and they would go to the yard in the winter with no hat and scarf to look for cigarette butts on the ground. So once, he made a hat and scarf set for one of them, hoping he wouldn't sell it for cigarettes. He did try, but guys in the cell block made sure that no one would buy it from him. In any event, so this fella, Lamar Knox believes that turning to crocheting was the first step in changing his life. He left the gang, which meant severing ties with his old comrades and giving up a position that he thought he would have for life. It was very emotional for him because he felt like he was abandoning his family. One night, he broke down and cried. He didn't know where all this emotion came from, but he woke up wanting to be a better person and live a simpler life. He says, and he wrote this lengthy article for the Marshall Project. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page at uh, Facebook.com slash Moreno fan. He says when he crochets, he gets into the rhythm of it. And he gets into his zone. He maintains the tension of the yarn as it slides through his fingers evenly. He's perfected every stitch, whether it's a double, double, triple-double, half-double crochet, or a single stitch. And his hobby has also helped him keep his sanity. Crocheting teaches him patience, control, humility, compassion. And it allows him to meditate on life. So. It got me thinking, I read about this a couple of days ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since, because there are so many examples that I've heard from people or read from people about a hobby that they've picked up and how it's changed their life. Maybe they were going through a rough breakup and um, that they picked up a hobby and that it helped them get through that. Maybe they were on drugs. Maybe they were involved in alcoholism. I don't know if you remember the ping pong pro that was in here at, who was a gang member. He was carrying around guns and he was just, you know, an incredible, uh, he was a, a, a gangbanger, Wally Green. And now he's the co owner of Spin, the ping pong club. He talked about Wally Green, how ping pong changed his life. He was going down a wayward path and then. He started playing ping-pong sort of by happenstance. That changed his life. And I've heard this. uh, Howard Stern, a great radio talent, somebody that I follow very closely, he talks about how when he was a late teenager, or may have even been in his early 20s, but I think he was a late teenager, he learned transcendental meditation. And the frequent practice of transcendental meditation, he says, changed his life. And I'm curious... If you've ever picked up a hobby or decided to dive headfirst into a hobby and that has changed your life somehow, and what that hobby is and and how it changed your life for the better, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I was thinking about this for myself, and there are a lot of hobbies that I enjoy. I uh, certainly like ping pong. I enjoy um, – you know, pickleball from time to time, but I don't play it that often. I've only played it a handful of times. Uh, I like racquetball. I like, you know, softball. I like a lot of different sports. But I wouldn't say any of them have really changed my life. Has there ever been a hobby that's changed yours? One that I think uh, has definitely changed my father's life is about, I don't know, maybe about 20 years ago, he got heavily into running. It became a... Um, A marathon runner did two marathons, runs very, very quickly. And I think, you know, he was always a very healthy guy. He was into biking and was always in good shape, always looked, you know, well-built and stuff like that. But for some reason, I think running for him was one of these sort of game-changing hobbies. I'm wondering if you've had anything like that for you because so many of the people that listen to us right now, a lot of them tend to be uh, lonely. Right. A lot of them tend to be folks whose uh, longtime companion or spouse has passed on. Uh, There might be people that are battling different uh, uh, types of, uh, you know, insomnia or any number of things. And there might be any number of hobbies that folks may find to be helpful. And it's funny. I don't remember how this came up. We were talking at my mother in law's at Thanksgiving about different hobbies that you'd like to take on. And my wife said she would really love to crochet. She would really love to learn and have the time to learn the art of of crocheting. And I'm curious if there's a hobby in your world that has really changed you. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be stamp collecting or baseball card collecting could be something physical. Could be something mental. Um, I knew a um, a guy that was involved in organized crime. He was affiliated with the mafia, but he he wasn't in the mafia because he wasn't Italian. I think he was, I think I think he might have been half Italian, but he was not in the. Um, he was not an inducted member of the mob, but he was very much trying to go down that path. And he went to prison. And at the time, the only thing he could think of that he wanted to do was be a mobster reminded me of this Lamar Knox story. And he discovered books. He discovered books in prison. And to him, that was a whole different world. It opened, it changed his whole life. And he's gotten multiple master's degrees. He's a published author. Now I've interviewed him uh, not in a while. I've sort of lost touch with him, but he's somebody whose life was changed by reading. And I think a lot of people are always looking to pick up a hobby. And I asked someone the other day, I said, what do you like to do? And this person stopped, stopped in their tracks because I don't think they could think of something that they liked to do. Some people, it's language, right? Some people really enjoy learning a new language. And that Barry Farber was like that. And to him... Learning a new language was not only a key to giving him an opportunity to travel to different places, but to meet different people, uh, to learn new things, and uh, that was big with him, language. And I'm curious what yours was or is. A hobby that genuinely changed your life, similar to what Lamar Knox experienced with crocheting. 800-848-9222. Tony in the Bronx, what do you got for us, Tony? Well... I got
2: a hobby. I don't even call it a hobby. I just can't help it. I cannot stop doing it. I was crippled as a kid Mm. and I just love sports and that desire to play sports and watch the kids from my window in the Bronx and they're running all over the place. I just wanted to run and play. And that uncontrollable desire just to play kept me crawling and moving and little by little. And, um, I've never not played sports in my life. So, I don't even look at it as a hobby, I can't help it. So what and it has saved my life. I just last thing. It has yeah. literally saved my life because it made me strong and healthy and I was able, I was blessed, you know, I got better. And now I uh, I teach pickleball. You mentioned pickleball. Wow. I teach swimming, I teach tennis. And uh I have a life that's incredible from sports. So it's a hobby and something I can't stop, but it's a good habit.
1: What uh, What do you think your life would have been like had you not cultivated that interest in sports?
2: I don't know if I cultivated it. You know, like when you're born, you're mm-hmm. born tall. I don't. I can't say that I cultivated it. All I know is that it has saved my life because I was crippled as a kid. I had rheumatoid arthritis for like for like thirteen years. No, I'm sorry. From the age of like six to thirteen, and. um and I think that just overwhelming desire in me to keep moving and playing sports, football, baseball, bat, whatever, in the streets of the Bronx, you know, it's not like it is today. Um, we played sports in the street. Hey, Tony, and, uh, I, I
1: love hearing this, uh, one, because obviously it sounds like this has been a tremendously uh, positive influence in your own life. But let's say someone's listening to our conversation now and they're looking for um, – Kind of a way to begin and they don't necessarily have anybody to play sports with or anything like that. Where would you tell them, especially if they maybe have some physical setbacks, where would you tell them is a good place to start? Is swimming, for instance, a good place to start? Number one is swimming
2: because it's easy on the body. You know number 1 is swimming but that's not the answer and I hope you give me like 30 more seconds. Yeah. yeah I remember absolutely. when I when I when I was uh when uh, my daughter was little she asked me to build her a shelf and she said I want a little shelf daddy and I I went and oh, I'm going to draw you and I made these elaborate plans and all kinds of things and uh I was a contractor also and guess what it never got done. <laughs> it never got done. <laughs> so my point is this don't complicate things I learned from that Just go once, because the minute you start making it complicated, then you don't have time for that. Tony. You don't have time for complicated, so just go once. I call it my stop the bleeding moment. I love it. Stop the bleeding, just go.
1: Love it, Tony. Tony, thank you. Uh, Continued good luck to you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening.
1: Thank you. Uh, So I'd love to know, and it doesn't have to be the kind of thing that Lamar Knox is describing, where you were in a gang and all of a sudden this was your flash of genius, sudden awakening moment where you stop in being involved in gang activity. It could just be something that you're very passionate about now for the first time and uh, before you've never and it's not been something that you've considered before. 800-848-9222. 800 I know for some people it's music. For some people it's our Alex Barnard um, who could just come in and say this if he wants. But he said yeah, writing and producing his own music was very important for him. We'll, we'll ask him to come on. You just have to say Alex Barnard's name twice and he, he comes up. He's like uh, two-thirds of Beetlejuice. But um, someone else talked to me. You know, I have a friend, big Wall Street guy. Wall Street guy, uh, very successful financially. Had uh, all the material wealth that you could want. Very nice family as well. He, about six or seven years ago, got into painting. And he describes the process of painting as something that has been incredibly positive for him in terms of relieving stress. Curious what you have. 800 848 9222, if, if anything. 800 848 9222. I want to read you a little bit more of this, um, a little bit more of this piece from, uh, from Lamar Knox in terms of it's in the Marshall Project. I just linked to it on uh, my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Alex Barnard is here. What were you saying? Tell me about how you cultivated your interest in, uh, in music.
3: Um, it was kind of by accident. I just got very interested in it one summer when I was 15 years old. Oh, I was... you were older. Yeah, I, I oh. was I was yeah, I was not I had I played instruments as a kid, but I wasn't I wasn't really that interested in I played violin and piano and I was not I was not terribly interested in it because it was mostly classical music and at that time classical music was not something that I particularly enjoyed and it wasn't until my funnily enough my introduction to music was through electronic dance music, and when I first started listening to that, that's when I kind of realized, oh, this could be something fun for me to do and I just picked it up as a hobby one summer when I was fifteen, and I haven't stopped writing my own music since and uh, so what were your what what did you do for fun before that um Honestly, it's hard for me to to even think I I remember as a kid for a while my hobby was drawing and I I did um I drew my own comics and comic books for a little while. So
1: you've always sort of been artistically uh, inclined. Yes. Okay. All yeah, right, well I that's have. nice. Um all right, well very good. Very good. And uh, you've said you think it's been a positive not just for what you've been able to create but for the impact it's had on your life in
3: general. Absolutely. I Can't imagine my life without music at this point. That's terrific. Same
1: question to you that I asked, uh, Tony. If someone's looking to get started in music, especially if they're a little older, what is maybe not necessarily electronic dance music or death metal or anything like that, but what's a good place? How does one get started in terms of music? Do you start with a lesson? Do you start with uh,
3: trying to get an opportunity to play an instrument? Where do you begin I would say if you're looking to write your own music, the best thing that you can do is just start messing around with any sort of beginner soft music software, whether that be GarageBand if you have a Mac, or um, maybe something cheap like <clears throat> I use a software called Reaper that is maybe sixty bucks. You can and it's really very easy to use. And if you just if you watch a couple of YouTube videos, you'll find that there's a wealth of knowledge on the Internet. That's great.
1: Uh, that is terrific. All right. Thank you, Alex. Um, uh, you know, I remember Juliet Huddy had told me how travel and discovering the joy of travel had really changed her life. And that's something that she continues to channel. But this fellow Lamar Knox, more than two decades in prison, and he wrote this essay that I, I just linked to sitting legs pretzeled on his bunk with his pillow and his blanket propped up behind him because he has a bad lower back and his knees ache, his hips ache, but he tries to walk as if they don't. And he puts a a sheet across his... He doesn't put a sheet, excuse me, across his bars anymore. He doesn't hide what he's doing. Younger guys tease him. They call him a washed-up ex-gang member who crochets, but the truth is a lot of people age out of the characters we once were. I think that's certainly true in my case. I imagine it's true many. And according to Lamar, crocheting helped him, pardon the pun, spin a yarn and create a new identity, a softer one that felt better for him. So now in prison, when guys walk by his cell and they see him crocheting to Marvin Gaye or the OJs, they just smile and give him a head nod. One fella recently heard him playing um, some music and – um He was attracted by the music and came to visit him, see what he was doing, and he became quite fond of crocheting himself. A few years ago, one of this guy's old gang associates associates landed in the same prison with him at, at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. He didn't recognize him until he approached him in the yard, and he let Lamar know that he'd been watching him for over a week to see how he was moving. What happened to you, he asked. Crocheting and playing Scrabble in the yard? At first, Lamar got upset. Instead of embracing him as a comrade and respecting his choices, he seemed to be judging him. And he shook his head in disappointment, then told him, smiling, I'm not a gangster anymore, I I crochet. Then he laughed, gave him a friendly hug, and said, You done lost your mind. 800 Loretta in Brooklyn, uh, you have a hobby that changed your life?
4: Uh, it's not a hobby. It's a passion. I made two things pay off for me, my love of music and being the class clown. And um, I didn't think I could walk. Uh, I didn't walk for three years, and I'm walking 11 and a half years now. Wow. Um, I sang my way out of the wheelchair uh, because I was 300 pounds. I hadn't walked for three years. So, uh, uh, before, um, my friend brought me my little radio with the headphones, I was singing the oldies I grew up with in the fifties and it has rhythm, a beat, and I could focus on that. And it took me outside of myself, outside of the pain. And, um, they didn't think I'd ever walk again. And that's what I thought. So I let go and, um, I I was the class clown again in the rehab center, and I couldn't see because I was almost blind, according to my eye surgeon. So it was easy to let go. I couldn't see people staring at me. And I just acted the fool, and um, I got out of there walking against all odds. And uh, now uh, my love of music, Elvis, Harry Belafonte, brought me to reggae, And I call in gospel stations and um, reggae stations, and they seem to love me because I make them laugh. And they want to give me Christmas presents. The DJ wants to pick me up and bring me to the event because um, I'm disabled and I Mm. can't travel. So um, um, laughter is the best medicine, right? Yeah, Loretta, and
1: what was it that caused your inability to walk in the first place?
4: I was 300 pounds, and I had uh, arthritis in one knee. Now I've lost 150 wow. pounds, but uh, arthritis has spread all over my body. Mm. Well, so uh, I, I was stronger then than I am now, but I'm in a better position. I don't know uh, what what—this is passion. This is the love of something that keeps you— you want to live, and you want to make other people happy because you became happy. It, it's not a hobby. It's it's your life's blood. It, it's what keeps the blood pumping. Loretta,
1: that's great, and uh, I'm glad you're doing so well, and it sounds like you've got a great attitude. And wishing you the best of luck, Loretta. Thank you. 800 848 Our friend Gracie is in Rockland County. I hear she's back on the East Coast, so look out all you Rocklandites. Hello, Gracie.
4: Right. Uh,
5: right. Listen, um, uh, with the Lamar, you know, he was there, uh, I I give him credit for doing that, but you know, he was there, he was bored, he was smart to take up something. Now, I have hobbies now, but I have more hobbies than I had when I was raising my kids. Mm. Uh, you know what I mean? You have to have time. I read, I belong to book clubs, I play mahjong. I play Canasta, I play Bridge. I I exercise every day.
1: So if you had to pick, Gracie, a hobby that changed your life, what would it be?
5: Oh, I don't think anything really
1: changed Nothing. my okay. life.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay, I've been playing a Mahjong since my mother started. So I'm, I'm uh, since I was 10 years old, I know the game.
1: Gotcha. All That's right. Well, Yeah, my Aunt like- Madeline's a big Mahjong player. Let me know if you ever run into her. Thank you, Gracie. Uh, what I'm really looking for is an example, something like what Lamar Knox is, is describing. A hobby that you you take up, and it genuinely changed your life. And I think um, Loretta did a good job explaining how music did for her, and maybe even Alex Barnard, 800-848-9222. Henry is in Manhattan. Hello, Henry. Hi, good evening. Um, I, I, as you well
6: know, because it's between us uh, two, I uh, write letters at random, somewhat at random, and uh, uh, my hope is to get a response, because usually it's a question. Um, and uh, it started back when I was in seventh grade. Uh, our My English teacher had us, we were learning like the form of a letter, a friendly letter versus a business letter. And he assigned us each to write to someone for their autograph. Hmm. Uh, This this is probably in 1962 or 1963, and I wrote to the author of the book I was reading um, at the time, and uh, my fellow classmates wrote to all sorts of people from Marilyn Monroe to Helen Keller to the president, and uh, that uh At that time uh you know there were the publicity for a celebrity i don't know if you call the president a celebrity sure. uh, uh consisted of you know sending back a autographed uh uh photograph, and people had uh albums and I remember. Uh, I traded something with one guy or bought it and I had Marilyn Monroe's signature. So so Henry, tell
1: me how writing letters has changed your life.
6: Well, it, uh, it allows me to go into every different area, uh, you know, from uh, writing to companies for their calendars. So it, There's a little bit of research that goes into it and finding uh, uh, reference sources. And uh, let's see. Um, Did I get to know anybody that I... uh, No, but it it, uh, allowed me to uh, expand on something I was doing. Like I wrote to uh, Norman Mailer once and challenged him to get a word into the English language. (laughs) And I said, I give him 30 years uh, back at the time. And, uh, the only, and the response that I got was a one sentence letter that used the word. (laughs) And I will say 30 years later, more or less, or at least more, uh, I wrote him again. And, uh, Ed, you had your chance. Now I'm um, taking it to someone else.
1: Uh, I'll look forward to hearing what that word is one day, Henry. Henry, thank you for sharing that. We'll continue with your calls in a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, 800 848 9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. just back from Mexico. I'll give you some of the highlights of, uh, of my trip, if you k- care to hear them. Uh, but I was really taken with this article that I just shared on my Facebook page, which I hope you'll read, about a prisoner, a gang member, a pretty violent gang member, who says his whole life was changed by crocheting. And it reminded me of a lot of other stories that I've heard of people whose hobbies have caused them to do a 180, in terms of the direction they were going in life. I'm curious if that that applies to you. 800-848-9222. Chris is in Manhattan. Hello, Chris.
5: Hi. My stepfather was saved by doing needlepoint because it it takes away the noise and you can just leave an open space and let the real stuff come in. But he was in AA. He got fired from his jobs. He was a teacher in Massachusetts and all that stuff. And he got fired for drinking too much and stuff. So he did AA. And then there was a needlepoint club, not associated with AA, but a, a yarn store. And and to the day he died, he was needle pointing and it just gave him a focus. And, and he and I really connected because I was not going through drug hard times, but just trying to like do something that took out the noise. And I started getting into needle point. And and the needlepoint out of Vietnam, uh, someone gave me some gifts from there with silk and stuff, and I was like, "Man, I want to make that." That's how I got there. But needlepoint, man, it it just cuts out the noise. It, it, it's like meditating. Well, how is needlepoint
1: different from uh, knitting or crocheting?
5: Um. I I I think that knitting is more busy. Like you can be a nervous person gotcha. and twitching and and doing the needles and and you still don't look like a nut for twitching because you're doing the needles, mm. you know. Um, but and, and so how point how you, was it
1: that your father discovered that? I understand his journey to sobriety and going to AA. But how what made him decide after stumbling upon that needlepoint club? that this is something that I want to try.
5: It was my stepfather. Stepfather, um, excuse me. Um, and uh, I actually, uh, it, it's a community. It's, it's in the Berkshires. And, and you know, you go to church, you go to whatever, and people do that. Hey, why not try it?
1: Interesting. Know? All right. Thank you, Chris. You know, it's funny. Um, one, a film that I've talked about from time to time is Demolition Man. And in that film, it takes place in the future, what was at the time the future. Now I think it's the past. But they program into you a constructive hobby while you're a prisoner. They have a way of programming it into your brain, the desire to go out and want to do this. And for Sylvester Stallone's character, who was a cop that ends up going to prison in the future, that was his his hobby that they programmed in for him was was knitting mike is in manhattan hello mike
7: how you doing Good. uh another like sad story similar to the previous caller like i guess i had a bad drug and alcohol habit and again i got fired from my job i lost my my marriage mm, lost my apartment i wound up in Tompkins square park and uh I, the only thing i had in those days was AA. so i would go to these like musty uh church basements and uh just hang around i had no social life enough. i had no network and at a lot of these uh, these AA meetings at these basements, they would have on the wall, like, an open mic that was being held at the same place. So I started, like, writing. Well, some people call it poetry, more like I do monologues. So I started writing monologues and going to that. And from that, it opened up a whole new world. I mean, I met uh, another wife, you know, got jobs back oh, things like terrific. that. terrific. I was known as kind of like uh, the anarchist poet or the, the angry poet. And I I channel a lot of the anger about like, you know, the first wife and the marriage and the firing into these poetry contests. And this is like this is like twenty five years ago now. And uh in the meantime a second uh well a second kind of disaster struck me. I got very bad arthritis. So I couldn't yeah. move around for the most part. But I did start I started going out to like dance clubs now i can't really dance i can i i can't move my legs so i could stand up and i could move like from the waist up like one of those uh you know those blow up uh tubes that you see outside <laughs> yeah, yeah. Auto- sure so i could do that so i dance it. i i go to all these dance clubs now so it's like an, even a, a second life and the third thing i do is call up late night radio all right and uh you know i, I the trivia contest. I'm Mike from Manhattan with a thousand dollars. I finally got my check.
1: Oh, wonderful! Great. Well, yeah. So uh, I hope uh, I hope you will be loudly proclaiming that uh, you got that thousand dollars all over the just, place. Uh,
7: like I figured, like what am I going to do with? I could just blow it. I, I, I what I did is I decided to use half of it to like uh, to uh, rent a venue on on this coming January first uh, to. Uh, to have, like, a, a poetry open, like, marathon oh, great. So for, like, 2 to two, 10 p.m. And, yeah, uh, great. The other hey, half I spent on that uh, If strippers.
1: people want to go see... The, oh, good for you. Hey, uh, so uh, if people want to see you, not not the strippers part, but just see your poetry on January 1st, where where can they do that?
7: If you have any of your West Bath, it's the, it's the artist community. It's on uh, West Street, all the way in the West uh, Village, West and Bethune Street. It's, like, 11th Street and, like, you know, the West Side Highway. And yeah. uh, that'll be January 1st. Between 2 p.m. and 10 p.m. It's free. There's no charge, or anything Like
1: that. Well, uh, no, yeah, I, if you read, I'm not. On a yeah, yeah, I'm not familiar with it, Mike, but uh, I suspect many of our listeners may come. Mike, thank you. Yeah. Glad to hear you got your money. Appreciate that. 800 848 9222. We'll continue in a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, back from Mexico. I was out there for um, my brother-in-law's wedding, and um, it was uh, you know destination weddings are always they're always fun, and it's always great whenever you're going on vacation anywhere, whatever the occasion is. To um, when there's um, a whole lot, bunch of people that you know it's uh, i don't know it's something kind of very festive about that and especially if it's uh, it's family so we had a great time so uh, my wife and i and carmine left on friday and we were very very nervous very antsy about taking our 1 year old oh. on the airplane oh. Oh, i miss him already so we um we we called an uber early friday morning oh the best was and you could have almost predicted that this was going to happen. My wife and I both had to wake up super early on Friday morning to finish different things and get ready. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of things that need to do. Uh, and we we both went to bed super early. I think we were in bed by 9.15 p.m. Now, when you live nocturnally as I do, what do you think is going to happen? By t- midnight, I was up wide awake. So I was up from midnight to 4.40 in the morning. And um, so that that provided for an interesting whole day. So I uh, then we call an Uber to take us to the airport for whatever reason. We couldn't get anything out of Newark. We ended up going out of JFK. Uber driver comes. Nice lady is driving the Uber. But you could tell she's not that experienced of an Uber driver. I don't know what what country she was from, but she had a little bit of a foreign accent. Not sure. Nice lady, though. And uh, we're driving, and and she clearly does not know our neighborhood. I'm trying to give her directions, and she's a little confused for a whole bunch of reasons. I, I think mostly due to inexperience. So on the way to the airport, and my wife is just, I don't want to say she's a nervous wreck because she's not, but she's very on edge, very on edge about getting Carmine on the plane, getting through security, yada, yada, yada. I am as cool as a cucumber, which drives my wife even crazier. The fact that I'm not equally stressing. So we get uh, we're we're in the super, and this lady says, "Well, I'm going to have to. Uh, I think I have to pull over and get some air. My tire is blinking that it needs air." And I said, "Okay, you can go to that gas station right over there." And I could tell just by the way she's acting, she has no idea what what she's doing. I said, can I help you? Can, do you? Do you need some help? And my wife tells her, yeah, you know, he, he gets flat tires all the time. He can help you. So I just filled her tire with air, and th- it was missing the the screw, the little rubber screw top on it. So I'm sure that was one of the reasons there was nowhere. So we go to the airport. We can, we're on the flight, and I have to tell you, for this flight from New York to Cancun, Mexico, Carmine was delightful. He barely cried at all. The three of us all sat in a row. The hardest part at the end of the flight was getting the car seat back out of the uh, plane because, you know, it's not exactly a lot of space there. But he did great. He did wonderful. So Friday was the day that they had the um, the rehearsal dinner. But um, obviously Carmine's got to go to bed around 8, 830, and we're not going to send him to bed by himself as a one-year-old. So I end up staying in bed with him because I want my wife to be able to spend time with all her family. My wife is one of nine, and I think think, seven of her eight siblings were all in attendance, which meant a lot for her because, you know, she doesn't usually get to spend a lot of time with seven out of eight because who lives in New Jersey, who lives on Long Island, who lives in California. And so I volunteered to go up to bed with Carmine, which meant, I have to tell you, and she was telling people, my wife was saying, you know, Frank will probably be down. I'll take the first hour of the rehearsal dinner party and then Frank will come down for the second hour. He's going to be up. Uh, he'll take a nap and then be up with you guys. He'll probably be out by one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. I slept from 8 p.m. right after I put Carmine down uh, to bed to 6.30 in the morning. I got... So much sleep. I felt like a new man the next day. It didn't matter that I hadn't eaten, no dinner or anything. I didn't get to go out with anybody or see the sights in Cancun on Friday night. I was as refreshed as can be. Saturday comes around. We're doing all these Saturday things. And, um, you know, walking around by the pool. Oh, the best was this. uh, My my brother-in-law, James, it's funny. I am not clear on what you're supposed to call your spouse's brother-in-law. Like, for instance, my brother-in-law to me is my wife's brother, right? Makes sense. Now, what is her brother-in-law to me? Now, I always thought the proper expression was her, my wife's brother-in-law. But apparently, according to a lot of the experts, that's not the case. It's still my brother-in-law. But I feel like there should be a different word for that. But uh, since there's not, uh, my, my brother-in-law, James, texts Rachel before we leave and says, in words or substance, there's no cigars here. Can Frank bring some so we can smoke some? So I figure we're going to Mexico. They sell Cuban cigars down in Mexico. And I'm told by people that these Cuban cigars are ubiquitous down there. So I said, no big deal. I'm sure they even sell them at the airport. So we land in Mexico. And I find these, this box of very reasonably priced cigars, almost too cheap. And I say, all right, these, the, it basically amounted to $5 a stick. And I look them up. They're budget-priced cigars, but they are technically Cuban. So I get a box of those just so we have something. And I end up at the resort. And then my brother-in-law, James, are about to smoke a cigar or something. And then my wife, when she's exploring, she finds that they have cigars for sale at the resort itself. So we go to the store there, and I see they have a nice Monte Cristo, a uh, a nice Cohiba. I said, all right, let me take a couple of these. The lady at the store tells me a price which was so outrageous. I don't even remember what it was because I think I mentally blocked it. And my brother-in-law, James, is standing next to me when she says the price and says – "Um, and, oh, he says, oh, don't worry about it. That's probably the price in Mexican pesos. No, it was the price in American dollars. This was a crazy price for two or three Cuban cigars. Good cigars, but – and, of course, I paid it, right? So we end up smoking a couple of these cigars, and um, I feel like I was just punched in the stomach for the amount of money that I had to spend for these cigars. I didn't have to. I chose to, but fine. So, you know, they have the wedding. Beautiful ceremony. I think it was uh, Adam's now wife, Brittany's uncle, that performed the service. They didn't ask me to officiate, but that's fine. Very, very nice service. And then Carmine needs a nap again. So I go back to the room with him again, and i he's napping during cocktail hour. I'm getting another nap in, and I've again, I got more sleep on this vacation than I have in, I think, years. So um, we go through the wedding ceremony. That's a lot of fun, and then we come back on uh, uh, what, so Sunday. We just hang around, and then Monday morning we came back, and we, we had a uh, connecting flight. That we are never doing again. So we flew from Charlotte to from uh, Cancun to Charlotte, and then an hour and a half after we arrived, we had to get on another flight to New York. And as we're planning this, we're going to say, what are we going to do for two hours or an hour and a half? Well, it turns out the line to get through customs was so long, and you have to go through security again, and that you have to recheck your luggage again. And I'm not complaining. I guess that's the circumstance. It's fine. And the gate that we were departing from is all the way at the other end of the airport. So, And this is only adding to my wife's stress level. So sure enough, this flight from Cancun to Charlotte, my son Carmine was awful. And he was so unhappy, so sad. He cried almost the entire time. I felt bad not only for him, but for the people sitting behind us and in front of us. I apologize to them, but they were all cool. And um, he just had such a bad flight. I felt so sorry for him. So we finally, we are in this Charlotte airport. And we go from thinking we're going to have a healthy margin to make this next flight to having almost no margin. I mean, it was, it was, we we made it by that much. I thought I might be late for the show today because it was so close in terms of us missing our flight because of all the things that you have to do. And because of the location of which gate is where, and we're in line to again go through security. I mean, keep in mind, we already went through security in Cancun. Now we're going through security again in Charlotte, and we're in line, long line, and it's not moving at all. And I see there's one guy that's being lightly scolded by one of the TSA people, and they ask him more questions, and they have them come, him come with them, and then he comes back. So I said, okay, maybe they. He was carrying something he shouldn't be having. And I hear him offering some explanation. I'm sorry. I fly all the time. I don't know. Okay. So that guy gets back in and then assuming that's leading to the delay. And then two other guys come in. And I, 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 at the time I was thinking, I don't want to stereotype anybody, but this guy looks like some rapper. And it was not somebody that I was familiar with. Cause I don't know rappers. And I was saying, he, am I just saying that because he's black and wearing sunglasses in, indoors and dressed flamboyantly? And I said, I mean, that, is that kind of racist on my part? So he goes through, and I'm assuming this is another guy that got pulled off the line earlier. But pretty, sh- pretty soon I can tell from the other TSA agents the way they're, at, they're acting. This guy didn't get pulled off the line. This guy was placed cutting in the line in front of me. Now, you can't say anything. Because you say anything to these TSA agents and forget about it, they will make a slow process even slower. So the minute I knew that this guy was a, a somebody, was I see the TSA agent admiring this guy's socks when he takes his shoes off. He takes his shoes off to put them on the conveyor belt. She says, oh, look at the pattern on those socks. And this guy goes right through, no waiting in line with his friend. The goes, guy goes right through. And now I'm trying to be extra nice because now my wife is, I can feel her temper just ready to get to a boiling point because she thinks we're going to miss this flight. And then I hear these other TSA agents, there's five of them now, all talking about this guy. And they're talking about celebrities. And I said, hey, who was that guy? And they said, oh, that was the baby. And I said, oh, baby! I thought you were talking about my son, which I did think because I kept hearing them talking about baby, baby. And I thought they would say, oh, we got to get a baby. Apparently, there's this rapper named Baby, And they had this guy cut in line in front of us. And we almost missed our flight. So we get on the flight to um, fr- uh, from Charlotte to New York. Uh, that was a lot better. Carmine slept almost the entire time. But it was a very uh, fun trip. Got to spend time with a lot of family, got to meet a lot of new friends and for my purposes, I got to sleep a great deal. So uh, I didn't get to sleep so much yesterday or today, but uh, fr- Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I was a not so lean sleeping machine. That is the incredible true story of our trip to Mexico. All right, we got commendations coming up. We have uh, the mail coming up, uh, a lot of interesting things. Oh, and hey, it's runoff day in Georgia. I'll tell you what you can expect. This is The Other Side of Midnight. In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: So some of you may have forgotten this because this is something that has not gotten much attention since the outcome of the other Senate races was decided. But you know what today is? Today is Election Day in Georgia. It is the day of the Senate runoff between Republican Herschel Walker and Democratic incumbent uh, Raphael Warnock. Now, um, ever since the Democrats notched a 50th seat by winning elsewhere... The Georgia race has received far less attention than it would have if the majority were at stake. So the majority is not at stake. The Democrats will still retain the majority. If Herschel Walker wins, if Raphael Warnock wins, the majority leader will still be Chuck Schumer, the minority leader will still be Mitch McConnell. Schumer will be in a position to approve federal judges, approve ambassadors, and things of that nature. If it was a case where the... Um, Republicans had won one other seat, then this would be a different ballgame. It's still important, though, the difference between a 50-50 Senate and a 51-49 Senate, without being too technical, is pretty significant. A 51-49 Senate means that committees will no longer have even numbers of members, Democrat and Republican, that makes Chuck Schumer's attempts to get legislation and nominations to the floor much easier. And the balance of power in the Democratic caucus will shift slightly to the left, which denies Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to some extent the extraordinary control that they have been using to be sort of a centrist swing vote. So um, I have not put, I don't put, I should say a lot of stock in polls. I think these polls are inaccurate far too often. I think the polling methodology is outdated, and I think the people in the press spend too much time allowing polling results to dictate how they cover elections. And that's why I'm going to tell you the polling results, but I'm going to give you my prediction for this race. And I could be wrong. In fact, most of the time I am wrong. I am predicting that today Herschel Walker is going to win this race. And a lot of people have already voted. I think over a million and a half people have already voted. By the way, you remember this is the state of Georgia where we were told the voting law they passed was so restrictive that Major League Baseball had to move the All-Star game. And uh, companies were calling for, for boycotts of the state of Georgia because of the new voting law. Apparently, it's not so restrictive. A million and a half people could find a way to vote early. Um, That's one of the reasons I think Walker actually could pull a rabbit out of a hat here and and pull out a win. Because I think in Georgia, and in general, but especially in Georgia, Peach State, Republicans have come out of this mentality at least a little bit that um, we should not be voting early. Because by doing that... They've ceded an enormous advantage to the Democrats by buying into this this Trump narrative that early voting is rigged or whatever else he would say that has given the Democrats a tremendous head start uh, before the votes are even tallied. So I think uh, the fact that Walker and others and I know uh, Walker had a lot of heavyweights out there campaigning for him over the weekend, Uh, Tim Scott, uh, John Kennedy and others. I think the fact that Walker and his surrogates were all emphasizing don't be afraid of early voting, I think that could be a good thing for him. The other reason I think you have to consider a Walker win here is because the whole reason there's a runoff in this race to begin with, had any of these candidates gotten 50 percent plus one of the vote, that person would have been elected. Why did neither Warnock nor Walker get 50 percent plus one? Because of the libertarian candidate, the libertarian candidate, Chase Oliver, managed to get uh, a pretty significant number of votes. I think about eighty one thousand votes in spite of the fact that he raised only eight thousand dollars. Now, on the one hand, that's pretty impressive. On the other hand, it shows you how unhappy the people voting for Chase Oliver were with both candidates. By the way, I'll remind the Georgia folks. That had they had ranked choice voting instead of runoff elections here, they could have saved the whole second cost of this election by just having people rank their choices. But I think that the plurality of people that voted for Chase Oliver are going to vote for uh, Herschel Walker because I think they tend to be people that want lower taxes – that want less government spending and things of that nature. And they were almost kind of making a statement by voting for Chase Oliver that, okay, we know Herschel Walker's a flawed candidate. We don't like maybe some of the character things that he's done in the past. We don't like some of the things that he said. We don't like the fact that maybe he was living in Texas a year ago. But we'd still prefer someone that's going to lower taxes and somebody's going to vote to cut spending rather than someone the other way around. Now, I could be wrong. Larry Sharp who was the libertarian candidate for governor. He was here on election night. He predicted that Warnock would win the runoff and he knows libertarian politics. I don't uh, I don't think so. The polls have pretty con- I, like, like I said, I don't put much stock in them. The polls have pretty significantly and um shown Warnock ahead since the last election. Of the 7 surveys released since early November, 5 of them showed a Warnock lead. One had the race tied, and one showed a one-point Walker lead. So it's going to be very, very close. It's very exciting to watch. Um, One of the things that I think is very interesting about this race is since Election Day and until today with with runoff voting day, both both Biden and Trump have largely stayed away. You have seen other national surrogates. Obama, for instance, stumping for Warnock. He's still very popular with black voters. But you haven't seen Biden. And Trump, who made some very controversial uh, remarks recently by saying they should terminate the Constitution. uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but that was the gist of what he said. And by doing some very controversial things like dining with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes and others. They've stayed away, and I think part of the reason they've stayed away is because Warnock's folks have told Biden, no, 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 we don't need you. And I think Walker's folks have politely said the same thing to Trump. So uh, for Republicans, the job of taking back the Senate in 2024 is going to be a whole lot easier if they take Georgia now, because you have a lot of states that tend to favor Republicans that have uh, Democrats— up for election in the Senate in 2024, the the best example is West Virginia. Joe Manchin is up for re-election in West Virginia, and that's a state where uh, Trump is a rock star. So, uh, and there's a couple of Republican prominent Republican elected officials that are talking about running for U.S. Senate there. But uh, you'll also get a sense of whether one of the one of the dynamics of the midterm elections remains strong, which is. Voters, especially right-leaning independents, breaking with their party when it nominates someone that might be considered out of the mainstream. You saw that in Pennsylvania with their gubernatorial candidate. You saw that in Arizona to some extent. And I think you could be seeing it potentially here in Georgia. Maybe not, though. If Walker loses, it also does diminish the, uh, I think, a little bit of the brand that trump has built for himself as a kingmaker in certain circles we'll see uh but georgia's going to be a pivotal state you know with the electoral college and i don't want to get in the whole electoral college debate but with the electoral college right now we know who's going to win almost every state in the presidency in 2024 almost every state is decided in 2024 as of now The scoreboard is 260 electoral votes for the Democrat, most likely Biden at this point, and 236 electoral votes for the Republican, most likely Trump at this point. It all comes down to really four states. It comes down to Arizona. It comes down to Wisconsin. It comes down to Nevada. And it comes down to Georgia. Everything else we know, barring some major, major... Sea change. We know how everything else is going down. So Georgia is one of the true, genuinely purple states. We have fewer purple states than ever in the current climate, as polarized as the country is. And uh, I think we could see what happens today maybe be a harbinger of things to come in 2024. What do you think? I'd be curious as to your prediction. Be curious as to your rooting interest. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. But uh, I think both sides are cautiously optimistic. I think both sides are also a little bit nervous uh, in terms of how today is going to go. So we'll see. We'll bring you the results, obviously, tomorrow. There's a chance we may not know the winner by the time that we're on the air tomorrow, depending on how close this race is. But uh, we'll bring you whatever information uh, we do know. So it's uh, obviously the eyes of the world, certainly the eyes of the country are on Georgia. By the way, they have just overwhelmingly reelected a Republican governor and Walker very smartly and, and for his campaign's perspective, very smartly is trying to drape themselves in the aura of Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp just won handily over Stacey Abrams in the gubernatorial election. So Walker is embracing Brian Kemp at every opportunity these days. So um, we'll see where this goes. But the final number in the first round was you saw Walker running behind Warnock by about, 38,000 votes. So uh, the polling does show a narrow lead for Warnock. If you're betting, the safe money is to go with Warnock. But look, if you're a gambler like I am, and again, I don't have a strong rooting interest here. I- I'll be honest. I would prefer that neither of these men be in the U.S. Senate, uh, either Walker or Warnock. But um, if I were voting in this runoff, and again, I wish there wasn't a runoff. I wish there was ranked choice voting. I would probably vote for Walker if there's the choice of only those two candidates because I really think there needs to be some semblance of balance in government. And I think a 50-50 Senate where you have two people that I consider to be very sensible, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, being the sort of the swing votes, I think uh, that's not a bad place to be, especially when you have a Democratic president and a Republican House. Uh, could it lead to gridlock? Sure. But uh, uh, it's not a bad place to be, I think. But uh, again, I'm not a fan uh, of either of these gentlemen. Uh, politically, I, I'm a fan of Herschel Walker as a football player. I remember during the 2020 election, maybe we'll play this audio tomorrow. During the 2020 election, I was interviewing uh, Rudy Giuliani, and he was somewhere. And I I wasn't present. He was on, uh, you know, uh, ISDN or Comrex or something. And he said, oh, Frank, I have Herschel Walker here. And it, I got to tell you, it was a real thrill to be able – I then got to interview Herschel Walker. It was a real thrill to be able to interview Herschel Walker. Uh, but uh, I think he certainly – I think if the Republicans end up losing this race today, it, it will be because of the candidate that they selected more than anything else. 800 848 There's all sorts of Republican finger-pointing going on already um the the it's it began a long time ago but his chief primary opponent said that walker would lose to warnock and this has kept up through the early voting period when the outgoing republican lieutenant governor refused to vote for either candidate but there is a path to a walker win the gop in some respect needs to catch up to the democrats on base turnout which the Walker campaign believes they're already doing after the Democrats who won a lawsuit to get early voting options last weekend dominated for the first few days. It could convince some of the 200,000 Republicans who voted for Kemp, but not Walker to grit their teeth and come back home for the runoff. So that's the thing is that's what it's going to come down to is do they get a plurality of the 81,000 voters who voted for the libertarian and do they get some of these 200,000 Republicans that voted for Kemp, but not for Walker? And I don't know the answer to that, but uh, I think there's a good chance they might. And um, we'll see what happens. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. It's also interesting what they're choosing to focus on in the f- days leading up to the final day of voting. They had this big rally in Columbus. And they had uh, State Senator Randy Robertson do this big rally. And the things that they did not mention, I thought, were very interesting. Namely, there was no mention of Warnock's vote to codify gay marriage rights this this week or last week. So that's a pretty big vote. And if you're thinking about trying to drum up evangelical turnout and things like that, you'd think you would mention that until you consider that the libertarian running was gay, openly gay. So if you're trying to win over supporters some of those 80,000 votes, who could make the difference here? I don't think you do that by demonizing someone that voted to codify same-sex marriage. So Warnock's ads and his speeches – emphasize the vote for the insulin price cap and support for a, a child tax credit. Walker's promise has been to oppose the Biden agenda, full stop, which I, I think goes to show you that their internal polling is showing what you suspect it might, which is that Biden is not necessarily the vote mover in that state these days, at least not in a positive direction. So uh, I'd be curious what what you think is going to happen Um, Republicans won every statewide race except Walkers last month. And they improved in a lot of suburbs, but they didn't win them. And Biden is not popular personally, but the agenda that Warnock voted for is not toxic. Um, You know, it's not like the day years ago where you could say, oh, that guy's for gay marriage, and that would spell the end of him. 18 years ago, just to show you how far things have come, 18 years ago, Georgia voted to ban gay marriage by a 54-point margin. Now, they are only marginally in favor of Republicans winning the Senate. So it just goes to show you, on an issue like gay rights, things have moved pretty significantly. 800-848-9222. Al is in Yonkers. Al, what do you see happening today?
5: oh hi frank i'm glad you had a nice trip uh, yeah you know frank yeah what i i see happening i think because of early voting uh that a sizable african-american vote has already uh, voted in early voting uh as you know the women uh who are black who, uh, who tend to vote democrat uh that to me uh is a sign that uh things look good for warnock i hope herschel walker wins but what he'll need to do to uh, win, he'll have to win the rural conservative to moderate white vote turnout. turn uh, If they don't turn out in the numbers to, uh, that he needs, I think, unfortunately, uh,
8: Warnock, Senator Warnock will win.
1: Well, we'll see where we are 24 hours from now, Al. But I think this, Im- this um, embrace of Walker and, and Brian Kemp may inure to Walker's benefit because Kemp has a lot of credibility with with moderates, with independents, with the anti-Trump Republicans because of Trump's clashes with him. And the fact that Kemp is going all out for him now, I think that might win over a few people that might want the Republicans to win the Senate, but they were skeptical of Walker. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. Only time will tell. for it. But I want to go on the record, and that's how you know I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to go on the record predicting a Herschel Walker win. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano. The Moon
2: is right.
1: The great Sir Paul McCartney, wonderful Christmas time. Uh, just this week, a couple of days ago, actually, in celebration of his 80th year, Sir Paul McCartney released. Uh, they issued seven-inch single, uh, a seven-inch singles box, it, a massive numbered limited edition collection of 80 seven-inch singles. Spanning from 1971 to the present, apparently was personally supervised by Paul McCartney and it cre- cre- contains recreations of 65 singles and promos using restored original artwork from 11 different countries. That's pretty neat. That is pretty neat. And uh, Paul McCartney, I mean, you'd look at a guy that is still just as um, incredibly impressive as a musical and talent now as he was 40, 50 years ago. And uh, I think that's him to a T. You know, it's fun. I've always liked this song, and I like Christmas music in general, but I feel like every year I kind of have the same complaint, which is that they start playing Christmas music too early, they start decorating for Christmas too early, that they kind of rush through Thanksgiving, and right after Halloween they go straight into every single day playing it's a wonderful life on television uh having the holiday displays all over the place and playing christmas music i was just thinking when i walked into the building a few hours ago i don't think that's the case this year i don't feel unlike previous years i don't feel like they rushed past thanksgiving into christmas I actually feel like this is one of those rare years, and I don't know if inflation is a, is a factor. I don't know if it's uh, because things are back to normal post-COVID. I don't know what the reason is. Oh, and for all I know, this could be just my perception. But I don't feel like they really rushed through Christmas this year. I feel like Christmas is unfolding at an appropriate calendar, and it's going through an appropriate time. So that's just my perception. Uh, If you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. If you're just tuning in, we're going to go through the mail a little bit later. I've been trying to, in addition to preparing for the show since I've been back, I've been trying to make my way through all the email that I've gotten, and I've made very little headway. But if you want to add to the email that I have, uh, we're going to read through some of it a little later. You can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, No guests today. I'm essentially right back from – so it's plenty of time for you and I to speak about anything that we've covered. But uh, I'm essentially – I came from the airport basically to the radio station. I dropped my wife and son off, took the car, and came here to the station. And um, my wife was really trying to get me to take today off. She was saying, you mean I'm not going to have any help putting Carmine to bed? You mean if there's a slightest delay in your flights or in our flights, you're going to miss the show? Don't you think it's the smarter thing to do to take Tuesday off? And I said, Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If there is a likelihood that I am here in time for Tuesday morning's show, I am absolutely doing the Tuesday show. And she said, You know, why is this so important? And I'll tell you, one of the things that um, is so important is I really appreciate Curtis Lewa filling in on both Friday and Monday. And I so I know a lot of people love Curtis and a lot of people don't really care for his style. I am a huge Curtis fan and I remain a big Curtis fan. And I know he takes some shots at me and I think that's great. I think it's hysterical. I think it's wonderful. Curtis, I was listening to a big portion of Curtis's show on Friday morning because I couldn't sleep and because I had to uh, record some commercials. So I, in baseball, and I'm a baseball fan, There's the notion of—I'm sure that there's the equivalent in other sports as well, but uh, baseball's the sport that I'm most familiar with. There's the notion of a five-tool talent in baseball because there's a lot of baseball players that are good home run hitters. There's a lot of baseball players that are good hitters for average. There's a lot of good hitters—there's a lot of good baseball players that are great fielders. There's a lot of great baseball players that are very quick and can steal bases and uh, bang out a, a triple, right, uh, when, you, when you have a, a ball hit to the outfield. And there's a lot of po- players with a great throwing arm. But there's n- very few players that are genuinely five-tool talents that can do all of those, hit for power, hit for average, uh, do great fielding-wise, do great with the throwing arm, and uh, do great in terms of speed. As far as I'm concerned, as far as radio talents go, Curtis is genuinely a five-tool talent. I mean, he really can do anything. He is a gifted storyteller, whether you're talking about stories from his personal life or my personal life that he makes up. He is incredibly funny. I mean, if you listen to the things that he says, I'm not even sure he's being intentionally funny. He is hysterical. I mean, he is one of the few hosts that I still listen to these days, and I find myself genuinely laughing out loud. He's also incredibly bright. And it's funny. Uh, one talk show host that, uh, that I know that doesn't like Curtis used to say of Curtis, you know, unlike – and this is a guy that's down on all right-leaning talk show hosts. But he said to me, I'll say this about your friend Curtis. He is not, unlike everybody else on radio, he's not an idiot. He just plays one on radio. And there's some truth to that. Curtis, you would think, because of the way he speaks and uh, because of the kind of language he uses, that he's not that bright. I don't think there's a single area uh, in public policy of consequence that you could throw at Curtis that he would not be well-versed in. He's great with callers. He's great, um, and I know for some reason he's convinced himself that he's not a good interviewer. Curtis is a terrific interviewer. Um, you know, he's very good with guests. He's very good by himself. He is such a diverse talk talent. It's really we're really lucky to have him, and I'm lucky to have him fill in for me. But I'll tell you why I didn't want to make him do one more day. One, um, the guys at our radio network, they live and die by these streaming numbers. They watch these streaming numbers, which they get in real time, like a hawk. So, heaven forbid, Curtis, who's doing a great show and who's, you know, uh, a national name, heaven forbid he does better streaming numbers than I do in my normal slot. Then all of a sudden, people are going to be saying, well, what do we need Frank for when – Curtis is doing even better numbers than Francis. Who needs anybody asking that question? So I'm eager to get back here as soon as possible. Also, it's really not fair to Curtis to have him do. I really felt bad for him. And I know Curtis says he doesn't mind. um, But he and he is almost superhuman in terms of his ability to speak for hours on end and make sense. I do one of these four hour shifts and I feel like I've just run a marathon. Curtis does four hours, and it's like just a warm-up for him. And if you look at, uh, uh, you know, what he was doing Sunday into Monday, he was on, first of all, all his crazy weekend shifts. Then he was on from 9 p.m. to midnight. And then back an hour later, and then he did Kill Mead from 10 a.m. to noon, and then did his own show from noon to what? I mean, it's really not fair to stretch somebody that, that much. So I was not going to... Uh, put Curtis in a position where they asked him to do that, and of course, Curtis is like me. you know he will not say no he 'll just do all these shifts so um so i didn 't want to put Cur- I felt it was unfair to you if you 're one of these people that doesn 't like Curtis to make you suffer through another four hours of him. I felt it was unfair to Curtis to put him in such a physically taxing position, and I felt it was uh you know risky for me to have somebody that 's doing as good of a show as Curtis is doing. Um, filling in for me when they could easily say, "Yeah, that sounds really good. Why don't we have that all the time?" So those are all the reasons that um, those were all the reasons that I was not eager to uh, take an additional day off. And and I, I think my wife kind of got it. I mean, if um, if Carmine has a tough night t- today, then I'm sure I will hear about it tomorrow. But uh, she was pretty pretty much over. The only saving grace I may have is that she's off from work today. So I, I think it's not as if uh, I'm, I'm as critical to the child care dynamic as I normally am. But we'll see where that goes. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. Hello, Steve.
10: All right, Frank. Welcome home. Thank you. And uh, the rallying cry of the loony uh, right. Did you go to the border? Did you go? Did you take a picture? No, the no, border? no. I you,
1: stayed pretty comfortably on the resort. I went to the border between um, the the pool and the ping pong table. That was the border I went to.
10: Before I get to the meat and potatoes, I was hoping you would go to the border because everybody wants Biden. to go. To I, you, you would wear one of those big like sandwich board signs and put on the sign like "Go Buchanan, Next go!" and time. take a picture Next there. Time. That would have been a classic. And Curtis doesn't do interviews because Curtis is, is an egomaniac. He's not going to interview anybody. And well, if you I were listening...
1: I, I don't... I mean, for, if you listen... I mean, you know Curtis's broadcasting career as well uh, or better than most, Steve. And as, when Curtis has done different shifts, his show has been very heavily interview-centric.
10: Right. But Curtis also... He, he's pulled off a trick. He's not. A, he's not a conservative. Usually you have to be a conservative to really be successful in this field to really get the audience see
5: i've got,
1: never bought that and i think the nope. fact that curtis is so successful shows that that's a fallacy
10: because he's entertaining that's right why. exactly he's entertaining exactly okay? i mean hannity's fooled everybody for the last 20 years but the the thing is uh with curtis i mean i could tell you he can change i remember when he would fill in for bob grant he, he, him and uh, Lisa would be praising Bob, oh, this is great. Then they have the morning show, and they would run B- Bob Grant over with a trailer in reverse, knock him and everything. Then they, he'd fill in. Man, Bob's the greatest thing to do. So he could switch gears really easy. Yeah,
1: well, could- a lot of folks do that. You know, Simone used to tell me how, uh, how he would change his politics depending on who he was filling in for, and he would rise up the level of um, – of of crazy things that he was saying depending on who he was filling in for so a lot of folks do do that
10: right but i've also been a firm believer. that most of these people are not conservatives they're just playing playing a conservative on there they're playing to the audience uh listen limbaugh came from uh, music radio
9: right and
10: when that thing collapsed in the a.m dial he became a talk show host and very successful because he's entertaining even though i really didn't go for Limbaugh, i didn't really buy into his act at all and uh, if you were listening to Curtis Friday, he was filling a few, you, you know, they played his theme song Friday, Disco Doc. Yeah, yeah,
1: I did, I did hear that. That was very fun. You
10: did hear that, right? Yep. That's, that's, uh, that's, I mean, at least he has the best theme song in all of radio, as far as I'm concerned. And as far as me calling talk radio and all the stuff that's gone on through the years, I could tell this audience, new portion of the audience, the only reason why you're hearing this voice right now is because of the people in the audience who demanded that I get back on talk radio. They banned me from talk radio for bringing up immigration, bringing up race quotas. They didn't want to hear that type of stuff. Steve,
1: by the way, I'm mean i happy to go along with whatever narrative you want to craft. I don't think anybody banned you from talk radio for any reason, but if you were banned, it's because you call under 30 different pseudonyms and and people get tired of uh, you calling seven different lines as seven different people.
10: Yeah, but that's like the fallout from that. Uh, Listen, when was the last time you heard me on Hannity's show? I
1: I don't listen. I I couldn't tell
10: you. I'm saying, but you haven't heard me in years on that show. Uh, After 9-11, he did have me on one time. He said, Steve, you were right. He goes, call any time, and then you haven't heard me since. I was basically banned from talk radio because I would bring up the biggest issues of the day. I supported Pat Buchanan, and then they started blocking me from all the shows that's when all the pranks and all the joking started on. And there's a lot of people who, who copied that and, you know, were imitators. You, I remember for, for a this. while,
1: uh, maybe about uh, 15 years ago, you took a break from Go Pack Go uh, to uh, backing Tom Tancredo. But now well, you- it's because... Now yeah, you back to,
10: was running, yeah, because Tan was running for president. Well, I know,
1: but 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 you see, like that's that's kind of I think what confounds a lot of people. Like in 2008, it made sense for you to sneak in a pro Tom Tancredo comment because he was running for president, uh, and Pat Pat wasn't. But Pat has not been running since the year 2000, so he hasn't run for president in 22 years, and yet you're still saying go Buchanan go. It was right. almost like you don't you don't hear people say oh go Dukakis go or go Perot go. Or, you go know? or
10: go Eisenhower go with something. Right, right, but right. Pa- Well, because Pat Buchanan laid down the blueprint – for what was would be a successful run for president, and that's what Trump. No matter what anybody says, he copied that in 2016. If you're new to politics, you wouldn't know that. Uh, you're familiar with it. You probably would know it. He copied Buchanan's. You know, uh, put the military on the border. We're going to build the wall. We're going to go to throw China. We're not going to deal with them economically. We're not going to deal. You know, put our companies there. That's Pat Buchanan talking back in the 90s when P- Pat Buchanan. Started talking immigration and race quotas, and saying, "Listen, what are we doing? Ex- exporting all our jobs to foreign countries like China?" Then he went from being good old Pat to being called every single name in the book. And I don't mind mentioning Pat's name because Pat has yeah, written a lot but, of great books. Steve, I know people Look, would read them. I'm friendly
1: with Pat, so I uh, am I'm an admirer of his. I've read, I think, all of his books, and so uh, you don't need to you don't need to convince me. And I think really the portrayal of him by some as uh, as being prejudiced or anti-Semitic is way off base. But again, it, it's just I, I think a lot of folks are, are wondering. Why you spend the time to say go Buchanan? Go. Why do you wait on hold for hours in some cases to squeeze in go Buchanan and go when Pat is not running for anything?
10: I don't. I don't wait on. It. Well, listen, we just had Pat Buchanan. Filling in as the Jet quarterback a couple of weeks ago. That wasn't me. That wasn't me calling in doing that. It was somebody else. all right That was a
1: shame that came uh, against the Vikings. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Oh my god. Robert, let me compliment Hi, you on your terrific phone that you're calling us from. Hi. Hi. Am I good? Uh better now. What's on your mind? Oh, oh no, uh, Robert, I'm sorry. You I don't know what kind of phone you're on. But call back from a landline or something because uh it sounds like you're calling from a, a vacuum cleaner. I mean, I, I just I don't know where they get these phones from, these people. I, I whenever I've called I call radio shows from time to time and uh never in a million years would you ever sound like this. And yet, person after person, they have to know that you can't hear them. Person after person, they come in static, distortion, coming ruffled. I do not get it. I do not get it at all. All right. Uh, we're gonna go through the mail in just a minute. And then uh we will um do commendations next hour. We usually do that on Monday, but because I wasn't here on Monday, the list of people to commend would be far too lengthy if we were to wait uh, one full hour. And uh, eight open lines if you want to comment on anything we're doing. 800 9222 That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight, midnight.
9: Uno. He's your numero uno.
0: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
11: It's very nice to go traveling to Paris, London, and Rome. It's oh so nice to go traveling But it's so much nicer, yes, it's so much nicer to come home It's very nice to just wander The camel route to Iraq It's oh so nice to just wander But it's so much nicer, yes, it's oh so nice to wander back the mamzels and frulein and the senoritas are sweet, but they can't compete because they just don't have what the models have on Madison. Ave. It's very the great nice
1: Frank Sinatra, we are closing in with just on um, December 12th, which would have been. Frank Sinatra's birthday. So you can bet uh, there will be some revelry and celebration of that. I know Joe Piscopo is doing a big concert or something. I don't even know what it is. He's it's, it's doing a big Sinatra thing in honor of his birthday. But uh, it's definitely going to be worth listening to. So uh, we're going to try and play an extra amount of Sinatra between now and then. All right, without further ado, it is time for... This is from Robert. Robert writes in, Frank, you have such a great show. Thanks for bringing a bright light in my day. Well, night. That's very nice, Robert. Thank you. Uh, If you want to email me as well, by the way, you can. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. Uh, That stands in stark contrast with Facebook commenter Paul, who said um, 10 minutes, this was written just an hour ago, 10 minutes already boring. Who gives a F about some scumbag sewing in prison? Paul, accuracy is so important. It is not sewing. It's crocheting big difference um (laughs) ryan writes yesterday who is this idiot hosting your show is he supposed to be funny i don't find him the least bit entertaining he can't come up with his own original stuff he has to trash you and play clips from your previous shows mention your family your child get him out of here I crashed in what a disrespectful punk! Well, Ryan, I honestly I appreciate that, and I appreciate that you're looking out uh, for me in defensive. But I, I can tell you, Curtis does not mean any of it. Curtis and I are good friends, and uh, nobody should uh, take that Yo, seriously at all, at all. Um, and let's see here, Victoria writes movie Elf. Hi, Frank. Still listening and enjoying your show. I hope the trip to the wedding in Cancun is fabulous and a good time for all. I just wanted to mention the Christmas movie called Elf in 2003. I heard you talking about them, so in case no one else mentioned it, I only saw it for the first time three years ago. You know, I only saw it for the first time ten years ago, actually. I, I saw it relatively recently. Looking forward to seeing it again soon. Oh, just remembered a romantic Christmas movie that is a classic now, too. It's called The Holiday with Kate Winslet, Cameron Diaz, Jude Law, and Jack Black. You know, I actually saw that film. Uh, and you know you know who else is in that film, with, and he's terrific in it? Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach is great in that picture. It's a perfect film, really, and has the great... Oh, she said, I see, I should have read this thing. It's a perfect film, really, uh, really and has the great Eli Wallach in it. The way it shifts between UK and LA makes it so colorful, especially with all that snow in the UK in it. I remember Love, Actually, and really am not a fan. Once was enough. Love so many actors in that, but it doesn't cut it for me as a classic. I am with you, Victoria. Not a Christmas movie, but a romantic movie I've seen many times from the UK is Notting Hill. Now that's a classic romantic film. Uh, I think we have similar tastes, Victoria, for all the reasons you mentioned. Brendan writes, Thar She Blows. Frankie loved the Moby Dick segment. You know, I was actually shocked, not shocked, because I always try to do things that I think are going to go over well with people, unless I'm doing one of those segments out of spite, where if people complain, I give you a segment that I know you're not going to like. But (laughs) Brendan writes, love the Moby Dick segment. This one is horrible. And then he includes a link to a Moby Dick TV miniseries from 2011. That I never saw, but uh, he uh, he says it's terrible. And then uh, there's another one that he says, never saw this, but looks unwatchable. 2010 Moby Dick video. So I didn't see those. I saw the two versions that we played audio from. I saw the Gregory Peck version, and I saw the Patrick Stewart version. That's what I've seen. All right. Uh, Terry in Wayne, New Jersey writes, Hi, Frank. love the topic last night about small business versus large business. The one thing that makes me walk out of a store is self-check registers. Yes. I walked out of Target this week. They only had self-check registers. I've walked out of CVS. That could be a topic by itself. Not sure how you feel about the self-check. Small business seems to want me in their stores. These other stores don't care if I'm there or not. Also, I don't want to be ignored. Small business usually gives you their attention. Have a great trip. I'll be listening when you get back. Maybe I'll even call in sometime. Well, Terry, I will continue to eagerly await your call. I have spoken about this before. I don't like the self-checkout at all. I always find that I have some difficulty. I like interacting with a person. If you have questions, it's nice to be able to ask the question. And I also like feeling that I'm helping someone keep their job and not surrendering to a robot. Um, so that's that. Bill writes of of the Kilmeade segment. Frank, keep up the great work. Love your show. I was listening to your segment with Brian Kilmeade. Brian threw a curveball to the naming of the Kilmeade Weekly segment by requesting a name that incorporates both you and Brian in the same in the name. How about the other side of Kilmeade? Although it doesn't mention your name specifically, it does incorporate your theme. The interviews with the with Kilmeade show the listener the all-around personality of Brian. We have seen another side of him during his segments with you. Your preparation and unique questioning bring out the best of Brian. As Brian would say, go get him, Frank. Thanks, BB. Uh, that's his initials, BB. I actually really like that idea. I think that is a stellar, stellar idea. Uh, Paul writes, Frank, your shows have been amazing. You hear that? Amazing. Wouldn't it be ironic if this was the same Paul that said earlier that I was boring after 10 minutes? But your shows a bit amazing. My <laughs> memories are from Westerns, which played all night on 247, meaning channels 247. Tombstone Territory begins with a whistle me up, etc. Lawman, Cheyenne, The Rebel, Maverick. Bat Masterson, Wyatt Earp, Roy Rogers, and Gene Autry. Some can still be watched on retro channels. Enjoy and best of the family. Paul from Great great Neck. Yeah, I do watch. There's a couple of good retro channels. The two best known are MeTV and uh, one is Antenna TV. Both of those show a lot of these old shows. I still watch Johnny Carson on uh, Antenna TV. And you know what? It's terrific. It's terrific. And a lot of good shows on there a lot of good old old pictures as well. And uh my my cousin Charlie watches I don't remember which channel. I think it might be Me TV. He watches The Rifleman every day on Antenna TV. So uh there you have it. All right. Uh this is this is good. This is from Brian. Not kill me. Frank, I enjoy your show some nights when I have a hard time sleeping. But why do you let crazy people like that general on your show? It really is disgusting. I'll never listen again, as I can't believe ABC Radio gives a forum to freaks like that. Thanks, Brian. And and then I thanked him for writing. And then basically he said, um, after I thanked him for writing, oh, and by the way, um... Tell Obi Murray hello. He used to, uh, he, I actually babysat for him growing up. Hello. So, <laughs> don't you think that's an odd email exchange? I'm never listening to you again, but that guy that comes in all the time, tell him hello.
8: Hey, do not.
1: So, hello. you know what? I'm not going to tell him hello. That'll show him. Um, I'm just kidding. I actually did tell him hello. Now, see, that stands in stark uh, stark contrast with this message that I got from my former step-cousin, Michael. I'm not sure uh, if—see, here's the deal. My grandmother was widowed. His grandfather was widowed. So they married each other. So when my grandmother was married to his grandfather, we were step-cousins. But both of them have died. So are we still step-cousins? I'm not really sure. But anyway— My either step-cousin or former step-cousin Michael, who's a bright guy in his own right, he writes um, also that Colonel with the book two nights ago, who was that? I was half asleep, but awesome interview. That was General uh, Thomas McInerney. See, that's what I love about talk radio, sincerely, is that two people, presumably very intelligent, can listen to the same segment. One person, it's enough for them to never listen to me again. And another person, it it causes them to wake up in the middle of the night and want to go out and buy that book. I love it. I absolutely uh, love it. Um, Bob writes, Frank, I listened to your show last week. There was a depressed woman who reached out and you took the time talking with her, recommending help for her. Really good job. Hold your head up high, Uh, Bob. Man from West Hempstead. Another person writes, "This is unsigned." Another person writes, "I wish Curtis would take over for you every day. He is much better and much more interesting." Oh, wow. maybe, maybe you're right. Uh, Joanne writes, "Belated kudos. Thank you for the great post-election coverage. Designating the entire show, different panels, hourly variety of guests for each. You know, I actually really got a lot of great feedback for our election day show, and including from a lot of people that listen to the show." For subject matters, uh, subject matter other than politics. So I I appreciate the fact that there was, um, you know, there was such a a good feedback, such good feedback to the whole election day coverage that we did. So thank you uh, very very much, and uh, I appreciate uh, everybody that wrote in. All right, uh, let me see if we can do one more here. Um, Gerald Jerry writes. Actually, no, no. We'll hold off on that. It's duplicative of something that I've said previously. Why don't we we'll, – we'll call this uh, the, the end of – I'm sorry. I know I said I was going to end it, but I have to just read this last one because it fits in the theme that we just did. Subject, why Curtis is better. <laughs> from Lawrence. Frank, although Curtis replays big chunks of his own previous recordings, especially when he's working overtime, and only those who've listened to those previous rebroadcasts realize the replays while perhaps even napping on the show. Curtis is not napping, I'll assure you that. Curtis has no difficulty going solo and performing single-handedly throughout his broadcasting. However, another host uh, that he mentions, for instance, not me, relies a great deal of feeds from those in-studio. Producers, screeners, engineers, um, uh, I think that is absolutely absurd. Look, you have to understand, radio is a creative medium, right? It's a medium where you're supposed to not all be cookie cutter. You want people to do things kind of differently. If you want to send me some snail mail, they're behind in getting us the snail mail, but you can do it, P.O. Box 1777, just send it to my attention, New York, New York, 10163. P.O. Box 1777. Attention, Frank Morano, New York 10163. Until next hour, keep asking questions.
0: This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
1: Is it Monday already? No, it's Tuesday. But it's Monday for me because it's my first show of the week. And as such, we're going to delve into a few Monday activities, including this typical one.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. Ah,
1: yes. Time for me to give a pat on the back to those that are worthy of receiving one. And let us begin with Arsh Pal. Arsh Powell is 12 years old. 12 years old. Can you believe it? And he is a brilliant artist. He sells his paintings for charity. And so far, he's raised over $16,000 for charities. It all started when his parents bought him an acrylic paint set for his eighth birthday. They had enrolled their young son in several extracurricular activities, karate, piano, Arsh always had shown an inclination for art, and they wanted to encourage him. And once he had his own materials, he began spending much of his free time putting color to canvas. Maybe I'll try that with my one-year-old, right? Get him some paint. Although, if my attempts at getting him to read and do anything else is any indication, he would just put it in his mouth. Will, will wait a few years. As Arsh's paintings began to grow in number... He decided to give them as gifts to friends and family. He received such a positive response, he soon realized his pieces had the potential to generate many more smiles and praise. So he started selling his art and donating the proceeds to charity. His first initiative was to raise $1,000 for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Since then, he's broadened his reach to benefit other organizations, including the childhood cancer nonprofit Compass to Care, and the Make-A-Wish Foundation. I love this kid's art. It's colorful, it's cheery, and it's just terrific. And I love that he's uh, giving the money to charity. I think it's a wonderful thing for young people to do. You know, you you come across so many 12-year-olds, and I think I was probably this way at 12, they're so self-involved and they're so selfish that they think about what's best for them. And I remember when I was 12, and I didn't, you know, when you're 12 or whatever age, you don't think of yourself as selfish. You just think that's the way you are. And I remember at 12, reading about people or seeing people that would cry at movies. And I said, and I would think to myself at 12, who are these people that would cry at films? And now I cry all the time. Because the more you learn and more you're exposed to, the less self involved that you become. The point is, and the reason I mention it here, is because for this young boy to be so driven to give to others and so selfless at 12 years old, I think that's really, I think that's, uh, uh, it says a lot about Arsh Paul and his parents. I want to give a commendation as well to another amazing young man by the name of. Josiah Johnson. Josiah Johnson was born without legs. And still, the more middle school student in Kentucky is a force to be reckoned with on the basketball court. Sure enough, this eighth grader has actually made his basketball team. This is a kid with no legs. Made his basketball team. And he's doing great. He earned a spot on the Moore middle school basketball team. And uh, apparently he's a pretty good addition to the team. And it's his first time playing on a school basketball team. And he is not doing poorly as well. He earned a spot in the starting lineup. And he has been described as being an inspirational leader to his teammates. I would disagree with that. I think he's an inspirational leader to everybody. So uh, if you think about that, eighth grader, born with no legs, works so hard that he actually can make his school's basketball team and make the starting lineup, it really makes you appreciate that the challenges that we have in our own lives are all challenges that you, we, you, we can overcome. I appreciated that call from that woman in the first hour who talked about, uh, and that's why I'm glad that we... Heard some stories like that, who talked about being able to overcome inability to walk and arthritis and uh, severe obesity and turning that into being productive through music. I thought that was great. And I think Josiah, Josiah, Josiah Johnson, even though he's just an eighth grader, embodies a lot of that same determination and stick to itiveness. I want to commend Joanne McQueen. And Marlissa Mercer. These are two best friends who won a million dollars playing the lottery and immediately decided to keep those good vibes rolling by, heaping, by giving heaps and heaps of money away to their community in, uh, in, in Canada, in a province in Ontario They identified several causes and charity is in their hometown to give big, fat checks to. First of all, Joanne McQueen describes the moment that she scanned her ticket at the Lotto Max machine at her neighborhood Shopper's Drug Mart. There was no ring-a-ding-ding, no sounds at all. The screen simply read, $1 million and a free play. She recalls being stunned, and she began to shake. It was pretty cool. They donated all sorts of amounts of money to... Uh, to places that McQueen's brother, who had died recently due to alcoholism, might have accessed during his life. Soldiers Memorial Hospital and uh, the Farley Foundation, which is an an Ontario-based charity that helps low-income pet owners take care of their animals. I think this is great. I think this is great. I want to commend, speaking of animals, Winston, the winner of the National Dog Show this year... Uh, The winner of uh, the Best in Show Award was a French bulldog. You know, my friend used to have a dog named uh, Winston that was, I think he was an English bulldog. But um, there's something about dogs named Winston that it's just a very bulldog name, isn't it? So sure enough, three-year-old Winston was the best in-show winner at the 2022 National Dog Show. So congratulations to Winston. Uh, let me congratulate as well, Sergeant Jock Eric Negron. This is uh, actually no, it's uh, John Eric Negron. Excuse me, of the Suffolk County Police Department. He. He's being called the baby whisperer because he has now assisted in his fifth newborn delivery in five years. He doesn't consider himself an expert in bringing children into this world. I, I don't know. This guy might be the law enforcement equivalent of, um, the, of good luck Chuck for expectant mothers. 37 years old, five babies in five years. Wow. And just last week, he was part of a team of cops who helped usher Owen Anthony Maldonado into the world in his family's living room. All right. I have to give a commendation to the governor of South Dakota, Christine Nome, And I never do this because, look, politicians make all sorts of decisions. Some I like, some I don't like. And so I try not to make commendations a forum for me just saying, yeah, you know, so and so did something I like, so I'm gonna st- I'm gonna commend them. I try to do this for charitable things or things that are a, a concrete record of achievement or something along those lines. I have to make a- an exception for South Dakota Governor Christine Nome. She has signed an executive order officially banning the Chinese run social media platform TikTok uh, from state-owned devices that can access the Internet, including smartphones, tablets, and laptops. I don't think people have a full appreciation for how dangerous TikTok is and how dangerous its use all over the country and its growth all over the country is for all of us. This data is going straight to China. Do you think that... The Chinese are going to use this for something good? No. At best, they're going to use this to sell you Chinese products. At worst, they're going to ultimately use this to hack into your data and get more stuff from you. And I don't know why you should have a right to go on social media, unless it's for a work function, on a state-owned device to begin with. Why should you be going on TikTok even if TikTok wasn't Chinese-owned and essentially digital fentanyl, which is what they call it, why would you need to be going on to make dopey videos or watch dopey videos on a state-owned device? So I find this to be such an important decision. And they're now saying that maybe this will be a model for what other states can do. And I hope it is. So I am giving Christy Nome a commendation. We need more governors stopping look, state employees from using state property for TikTok. Look, you want to use TikTok on your own time? Fine. But it's way too dangerous to have state information, which you have on your phone, accessible to these Chinese companies like TikTok. So I say good for you, Christine Nome. I do commend you. I must also commend Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Professional wrestler turned actor. He uh, posted on Instagram something very nice. He, when he was fourteen, and hungry, he used to s- steal candy bars from a Seven Eleven. Well, he went back to that same Seven Eleven in an Instagram video, and he. Entered this 7-Eleven location in Hawaii, and in an attempt to make things right, purchased every last snicker bar on the store's shelves. He said, quote, I finally exercised this damn chocolate demon that's been gnawing at me for decades. We were evicted from Hawaii in 1987, and after all these years, I finally got back home to right this wrong. I was broke as hell. The same clerk was there every day and always just turned her head and never busted me. Now, I recognize to some extent this is a publicity stunt. You know what? I think that's great. I think that's fine. That's what people that are celebrities do. They engage in publicity. And if it's something that shows uh, correcting some past misdeeds, I think that's great. Uh, So good for you, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I want to give a commendation to Raw Honey. New study finds... Raw honey may help lower blood sugar and cholesterol levels. You know, the more that we find out about honey, the better it is. So honey is a natural sweetener. It's delicious. You put it in tea, put it on toast. I used to put it on toast when I was uh, trying to stay away from butter and things like that. I put it in yogurt. It's great. It never goes bad. Never goes bad. How many foods can you say that about? I think it's just one. And now, according to nutrition reviews, they have recently published a systematic review and meta-analysis that evaluated the effect of honey, especially raw and clover honey, on risk factors for cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And the authors found that honey consumption was linked to lower fasting blood sugar levels as well as lower levels of total cholesterol and triglycerides. My advice to you is if you use any sort of a sweetener in your life, consider replacing it with honey. There's that. All right, I want to give a commendation to NYPD Chief of Department Kenneth Corey, who has retired after... 40, excuse me. After 34 years on the job, I've met Chief Corey uh, many times. Um, this guy is a cop's cop, an incredible public servant that is a the definition of what a police officer should be. And uh, I think the least we could do for what he has given to the city is give uh, him a sincere commendation on this one. I also want to commend uh, one of our listeners who I had the privilege of meeting at Michael's of Brooklyn when she was there for Sid Rosenberg's uh, book event, and that is Sherry from Brooklyn. I think Dominic Carter had her on uh, his show because she knows Dominic too, but she retired last Tuesday after 40 years of service to the NYPD. Sherry's also another cop's cop. You know how difficult it is to have any job for 40 years? Especially to stay in the police department when you could retire at like uh, so many cops seem to after 20 years. And I'm not knocking people that do that. I mean, it's part of the reason that you take the job. But if you were staying on the job for 34 years like Kenneth Corey or 40 years like Sherry from Brooklyn, who's been a regular caller to this show as well... That shows a commitment to public service and to policing. And I give her a lot of credit. Um, want to give a, a commendation as well to Joseph Cook. I love this guy. This guy is a, a man after my Uncle Steve's heart. A metal-detecting expert who dug up a $40,000 ring. What would you do? Keep it? Sell it? Not Joseph Cook, who they call Joey Digger or Joe Digger. This guy actually found this ring six inches underground, pulls out this beautiful, huge diamond ring, and then he launches this search to find the owners of the ring. He took to social media, made a public service announcement in hopes that the original owners would see the post. In addition, he contacted 100 jewelry stores in the state where he found it, state of Florida, I believe, with photos and descriptions of the ring. He emailed stores all the way um, over the coast of Florida, almost all the way up to Georgia, And then, finally, he got the call that he was waiting for, a husband who got a tip from his jeweler claiming it was his wife's lost engagement ring and sending the wedding photos to prove it, and he returned the ring, found a $40,000 engagement ring, went out of his way to find the owners, and returned it. And um, penultimately, I really want to commend someone who many of you may remember, from her time working on this show, and that is our former telephone talent coordinator, Gabby Lopez. Gabby was an integral part of this show. She was not only a great uh, telephone talent coordinator, but she would do those um, weekly pizza reviews on Instagram, which became quite popular. A lot of people would tune into the show just to hear her pizza reviews. And uh, Gabby's last day at uh, our radio station was Wednesday. She'd been kicked upstairs because... She did so well here, and uh, she was kicked upstairs to the podcasting department, and um, she announced that she is moving to Florida, and she got a job down there doing something interesting, but I'm wishing her the best of luck, because Gabby is uh, a wonderful person, and she was great working on our show. I've missed her since she has moved on, Uh, but uh, you know what? You can't stop progress. You got to... You always want people that are working with you to do go on to do bigger and better things. So wishing her the best of luck in Florida. I'm sorry I won't see her around the station anymore. But uh, I uh, she's a terrific person who's going to do great. So a commendation to you, Gabby Lopez. And lastly, I want to wish a belated happy birthday to our, the first lady of our network, Margot Katsumatidis, who celebrated her birthday on Friday. And I texted her. As we were leaving for Mexico, but I was very sorry that um, I didn't get to go. She was honored on Friday and I was invited and I didn't get to go. And there was a very stirring rendition of uh, Lee Greenwood uh, singing to Margot. I, Margot, and this may sound obsequious, but it happens to be true. Margot is one of the finest people that I have ever met. And um, Margot spends every day of her life helping other people's dreams come true and helping other people's wishes come true, including mine. And she really goes out of her way to pe- for people. You know, I tell these stories on the radio, and by and large, they're just stories for me to tell on the radio. I told a story two years ago about how my wife had broke this James Garfield mug that I had uh, gotten in Ohio. The next day, I don't know how she did it, Margot has two different, brand-new James Garfield mugs personally delivered to me. I mean, this is a woman who has much bigger fish to fry than my broken mug, but she does that not just for me, but for everybody. She's an incredible person, and I can't think of anybody more worthy of uh, having her birthday wishes come true. So a commendation to you, Margot Katsimatidis. All right, Uh, if there's any comment that you have on anyone I have commended, you are welcome— to comment 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 this is the other side of midnight straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight with frank morano it's the other side of midnight with frank morano
12: The other day he said thanks for the ball Dad. On, let's play can you teach me to throw I said Not today I got a lot to do he
1: said, the great Harry okay. Chapin uh, cats in the cradle what a, what a brilliant talent day. Harry Chapin is I mean you talk about a guy who much like Elvis whose life was cut far t- cut short far too early and yet they still both managed to produce especially Elvis but uh, they both managed to to produce this incredible body of music that a musician twice their age would be lucky to have achieved that quality and quantity of music. And uh, today would have been Harry Chapin's birthday, had he still been with us. You know, last year, I'm a Harry Chapin fan, I always have been. And uh, last year was a real treat. I got to interview his daughter, Jen Chapin. And uh, if you, you can hear that if you ever... You know what? I'm going to link to it. Uh, I'm going to link to it. Um, I'll put it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And you could hear some of the stories that she told about her father as a person, but also what his legacy is as an activist and as a, um, as a musician. So, um, do you remember when I told you the story about Pepsi and the Harrier jet. I told you this story in August about the kid who sees this Pepsi commercial and tries to make a, a claim for a Harrier jet. And some of you remembered the story from when it happened in the mid-90s. Others did not. I, the feedback that I got to just reading you the facts of that story, kind of Paul Harvey style, was phenomenal. Now, little did I know that this story of something that happened in 1995 and 1996 would not only be an interesting radio segment for us back in August, but it would be the subject of a new Netflix documentary series. Sure enough, when I was on the bike the other day, it pops up in Recommended for You, a special that says Pepsi where's my jet here's a trailer it's a documentary series four parts very short very short so 35 40 minutes per episode you can watch it go through it like that in fact I finished it when I couldn't sleep on uh, Friday morning and I got tired of listening to Curtis uh, tell me how terrible I was so I ended up watching this documentary series I had started it and then I finished it on, fr- on Friday morning Pepsi, where's my dr- my jet? Here's the trailer. In the '90s, Pepsi was famous for the advertising. It was a cool
4: club to be in.
13: Different world then, different John. This commercial comes on. Here's your jet, seven million Pepsi coins. I really saw this as an opportunity to change my world. I'm like, I want the jet. My mind couldn't stop racing to try to figure out how to make this happen.
4: We just couldn't drink that much Pepsi. <laughs>
13: I need to buy 1.4 million 12-packs. I knew there was one person that I could potentially get to bite on this.
14: And then he pitched this idea. It's, it's crazy, it's insane.
13: Six warehouses, somewhere in the neighborhood of 45 people. It would cost $4.3 million. I'm reading the fine print. We found a loophole. Here we go. Bring on Pepsi. Hey, somebody sent us a check for $700,000 for the Harrier jet.
14: What? Why? seven million points harry or jet
13: you saw it
0: it's clearly a joke
1: this was a money grab
0: opportunity
14: and
1: then they changed
14: the ad we're just kidding here a big corporation knows how to game the system i'd use different language if i weren't on camera you're um, on netflix
13: so you can use whatever language you want them Pepsi went on the offense
10: it was in no way an
2: admission
1: that we had done anything wrong it was an admission
9: of guilt that was about my pay grade
13: Little, little it was something right out of the Tom Clancy story. I'm not going to prison
14: over a damn jet.
13: We need to shake things up a little bit.
14: Plot twist, Michael Avenani. You can read all about him. Just Google his name.
13: This is when things really started to get crazy.
1: They never figured that there ever would be a John Leonard.
13: What I have to lose.
1: You wanted that jet.
13: I want the jet.
1: Johnny wants the jet. Let me tell you something. After the show today, if you have Netflix, I don't care what you have to do. Watch this documentary series. This documentary series is phenomenal. Um, I couldn't stop talking about it in Mexico because I just finished it. My wife has now heard me pitch a dozen people on this on this documentary show. We'd meet a, we'd meet people at the wedding, a friend of my brother in law, whatever. People at the airport, and my wife would have to listen to me summarize this documentary for everybody. If you don't know the story, you're so lucky, because I don't look it up. Don't look up what happened, because if you don't know the story, that allows you to approach this documentary and have the documentary play out and. It plays out like a real drama. Now, I knew the end, what, what occurred, so I I thought maybe I wouldn't enjoy it as much. It's still great. So basically what occurred here, in the 1990s, in 1995, Pepsi ran a Pepsi Points commercial, uh, a Pepsi Points promotion, like Marlboro, like, like everybody does. We're, we're, we may have to start one like this. So basically if you collected points, you could trade it for merchandise, a hat, glasses, whatever. So they run this commercial, and I, I played this for you at the time in August. They run this commercial of a kid, looks like a teenager, getting out of bed, and uh, he's a slick-looking kid. Got a T-shirt. And it says Pepsi uh, T-shirt, fifty Pepsi points. Um, th- throws on a le- a hat, hat, fifteen Pepsi points. Leather jacket, twelve hundred Pepsi points. Shades. 80 Pepsi points. And then it shows this kid, you know, 19-year-old kid or whatever, 17, whatever, coming to school, driving to school in a Harrier jet, like a military-grade Harrier jet. And he arrives at school, and he it says, sure beats the bus. And then at the bottom of it, it says, Harrier jet, 7 million Pepsi points. John Leonard was a 20-year-old, I think a college student or certainly college age, he sees this. He wants the jet. And he goes through the process of acquiring 7 million Pepsi points. He basically gets them. And Pepsi decides they don't want to give him the jet. This documentary is that story. I thought I knew the story. After watching this documentary, and this is my definition of a good documentary, I knew nothing about it. Not only is this documentary compelling and interesting and bring, brings up all sorts of important issues about marketing, about legal, legal stuff. The characters in this episode are hilarious. Every single character in this could be the subject of their own film. And, and again, I thought I was familiar with the story. There's one character that's mixed up in this whole thing. And I I hope we can get the filmmakers on this show because this is my new project, is evangelizing this documentary. It's called Pepsi, Where's My Jet? There's one guy in this documentary who was involved in this whole episode that you've heard of. And I don't want to tell you who it is, but it's a big name. Big name. He's sort of fallen in public disgrace now. He's he's publicly disgraced. But he's someone that for a time was ubiquitous on television. Not going to tell you who it is. But he was everywhere. Not only is the story great, the way this documentary is produced, and I I produced a documentary, a Netflix documentary. It's called uh, Get Me Roger Stone, which I also recommend if you haven't seen it. The way this documentary is produced is, it's tremendous. It's so creative. Their use of animation and changing imagery and... uh, Different themes throughout the documentary it's brilliant. it is absolutely brilliant. I cannot say enough good things about this documentary i there's a lot of things that I see and I like a lot of most things I say, yeah, it's pretty good, but it won't change your life. This may not change your life, but it will certainly improve the level of enjoyment in it. Pepsi where's my jet it is delightful. It's fun. It's uplifting. It's not too serious, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, it is kind of serious. And uh, I really can't say enough good things about it. I'd be curious if you have seen it, what your opinion of it was. But um, if you do call in to discuss this, this David and Goliath story, this 20-year-old attempting to win this fighter jet don't give any spoilers away because it's really um, a wonderful story. And I don't want to ruin it for people that may not remember it or uh, things like uh, things like that. I, I'd love for folks to kind of go in fresh. I can't say enough good things about it. It's on Netflix. Pepsi. Where's my jet? That's the name of it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 9222 If you want to comment, that's eight hundred eight four eight. Nine two two two. You can also find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. And uh, I got. Oh, oh, this is an interesting story. The, the the we do a lot of animal stories on here. Obviously, the fellow who you remember the whole story of Lady Gaga's bulldogs. The man who shot Lady Gaga's dog walker and stole the Bulldogs has been sentenced to 21 years in prison. Uh, I don't think that guy is going to have many defenders. But sure enough, as part of this deal, James Howard Jackson pleaded guilty to one count of attempted murder after he was accidentally released from custody. You know how Cindy Adams likes to say, only in New York, kids, only in New York? That's one of those things. Only in California, kids. Only in California. It was nice. We got to spend some time with uh, my brother-in-law, David, who's a, a cop in in California. And he came to the wedding. And it was nice to spend time with he and his wife, Natalie, and uh, and their daughter, Jolie, who we certainly don't get to see enough. So eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Paul is in Staten Island. Paul, you saw that documentary?
15: Yeah, it was very good. It was excellent. Like like you said, very creative. It it changed my mind. Hold on. I just (laughs) thought the bell's in the car going off. Sorry, brother. I just left the deli heading to work. But, yeah, it was very creative. Also, um, hold on a second. I'm sorry, Frank. I'm going to put the seatbelt on. That's the seatbelt. I'm sorry, my brother. It was very creative. Also, I had no idea about the contest. That uh, they had, where was it, Thailand or something? No, uh, and the, 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 I
1: don't, the Philippines. I don't want you to give too much the away because I didn't know oh, about right. that either. And it did change my yes. opinion a little bit of Pepsi as a company.
15: Yes, 100%. Totally changed my opinion as a company, but I still love the product. I won't stop drinking Pepsi. Yeah. But the, the company itself, bunch of tyrants.
1: Yeah. Well, I think um the episode that you're alluding to and what happened in the Philippines, uh, that is uh very interesting. And it's something that I don't remember getting widespread media attention at the
8: time.
15: Ah, uh, yeah, me too. Me too, because I've been a follower of them for a long time because of the problem. I don't remember it at all. Yeah. So they definitely suppressed <laughs> that must have been a Biden campaign.
1: Well, <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks very much. Appreciate it. You're welcome, brother. Hey, take care. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And obviously one of my favorites we lost uh, yesterday. Very shocking um, that uh, Kirstie Alley passed away. We'll talk about her life and her legacy. And uh, I-, I never knew All- Kirstie Alley except on um, on Twitter. I tried to get her on the show a couple times, but it uh, didn't work out. I was a huge Kirstie Alley fan. So we'll talk about Kirstie Alley a little bit later on. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800 848 That's 800 848 Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
1: A Town Without Pity, uh, Pity by the great Gene Pitney. Some of you might remember, Look Who's Talking, uh, which I actually saw in theaters, by the way, back in 1989. Uh, this was the scene that uh, Kirstie Alley danced to in the kitchen. That scene. A fine, fine song. So it's funny. <laughs> um, I had another one of those nights, set Sunday night i um end up going to bed around eight p m on vacation in um in Cancun. I went to bed when my son went to bed right because whenever whenever one of us had to go to bed with with carmine, I always volunteered to be the one to go to bed because you know I wanted my wife to be able to spend time with all her siblings and everybody and uh these you know especially folks like her brother david who she, she doesn 't get to see that often so um I go to bed and boom, Sunday night into Monday, I go to bed around 8. I am wide awake from 1135 to 2 o'clock in the morning. Two and a half hours. Now, I can't turn the radio on, which is my go-to, because my son is sleeping in the room with me. Can't turn the television set on, same reason. Can't really, I don't know, do any reading in terms of books. Speak or do some writing because I don't want to have my computer, and two, I can't really turn the light on because I don't want to disturb Carmine. So I end up just looking at my phone. And you know, I, I I'm like this even under the best of circumstances. Even when I'm under the gun and I am on deadline after deadline, I end up going down these research rabbit holes. And a thought will occur to me, and then I'll think of I'll think of X Y Z, and then. Um, And then I'll read an article and I have to read an article and and research this. And I end up going down this rabbit hole of 90 minutes of research about all sorts of things. Um, I'll save some of the things that I discovered for another day. But then I get an email. An email pops up from basically a, a, a publicity firm, I guess. I don't know what they are. A PR firm of some sort. That says, hey, you know, of all the people who don't have a Wikipedia page, you, meaning me, Frank Moreno, you are mentioned in more Wikipedia pages than almost anybody. So what do you mean? They said you don't have a Wikipedia page, but you're mentioned in article after article. You're mentioned on WABC's Wikipedia page. You're mentioned on uh, Joe Piscopo's Wikipedia page. You're mentioned on... uh, Juliette Huddy, Curtis Slewa, the Reform Party, you mentioned them, John Gotti, you mentioned all these Wikipedia pages, and yet there's no link to you. Like, they can't go anywhere. Um, And then they were trying to sell me on something. They said, uh, for 600 bucks, we will make it guaranteed that you get a Wikipedia page. And look, there is no way I'm paying anybody 600 bucks For the privilege of being on Wikipedia. They can exclude me for all I care. But it got me curious. So I end up going to some of these articles that they had linked and I click on my name. And I say, oh, okay, Uh, it says, uh, you know, Frank Morano did this, Frank Morano did that. Okay. Um, And then I I said, I wonder what happens if you click on, you know, on my name. So I see it says there is a draft for this article at draft colon Frank Moreno. So somebody started this article and the submission was declined on June 16th of this year. I said, oh, that's only six months ago. That's so nice. And I'm thinking a listener went out and, uh, thought that I should be on Wikipedia. Wikipedia, if you don't know, is a big online encyclopedia. And it also kind of defines the rest of what you find on Google. It's very reputable. I mean, I'll, I'll, it's got a bad rap because anybody can edit it. But it, it, actually, most of what's on there has to be cited and sourced. I could see why Wikipedia of 15 years ago, people might give a bad rap to. Wikipedia of 2022 was actually a, a pretty interesting resource. But anyway, that's we'll save that for another day. So I say, okay, it's so nice that a listener would go out and create a Wikipedia page. Let me read you the Wikipedia page that this listener who or this person—I don't know who this person is—created for me, which I was very flattered by. Let me read you what they wrote. Frank Morano is the host of uh, seventy-seven WABC's "The Other Side of Midnight." Great. So far everything is accurate. Listen, Morano has hosted several guests, including former U.S. Marine Corps slash Army private William Scott Ritter Jr., parenthesis, appearances on RT and twice convicted child sex offender, close parenthesis, and Max Blumenthal, parenthesis. Appearances on Sputnik and RT, close parenthesis, who have voiced partial support for Russia's invasion of and genocide in Ukraine. Murano has also himself expressed Vladimir Vla- Vladimirovich, Putin's propaganda that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was justified by NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe. First of all, it's a total hit piece, just portraying me as a Russian stooge. Now, we can have a discussion about whether I am a Russian stooge or not. If I were a Russian stooge, I would appreciate Vladimir Putin forking over a little bit of money to the frankster like he's paying all the other Russian stooges. But I would think there's much more to me than just simply being a Russian stooge. The totality of this little article that this guy tried to submit is just me being a Russian stooge. That's the whole article. And now I'm thinking, thank God um, Wikipedia declined this. This is the next line. Murano, and it's misspelled. This line is misspelled. The rest of one is is spelled correctly. But they've gone from M-O-R-A-N-O to M-U-R-A-N-O. Murano is married to Rachel, and then it gives my wife's maiden name, which I'm sure she'd be thrilled with. Um, it's not that big of a secret, but it is married to Rachel blah, 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 and resides on, and then it lists my street and the borough and city in which I live. Now, that is just dandy with me being as critical as can be of the Nazis that are in bed with the Zelensky regime, and uh, they they are trying to I, I essentially dox me. By making it clear to everybody that would dare Google me that this fella is a Russian propagandist. And by the way, if you're one of these Zelensky loving Nazis, um, you could find him on XYZ Street and in XYZ location. By the way, I would appreciate it if you not go to the trouble of looking up my address. Uh, You know, I'm a pretty accessible guy. You could find find it, but eh, just as soon not. Right. There's no need. No need. So uh, big thank you, uh, sincerely, to Wikipedia for declining that uh, that Wikipedia entry. And um, I I don't know what is going on in terms of uh, in terms of the pro-Ukrainian propaganda machine. But so be it. Uh, It is interesting. I don't want to get into the Russia thing. It becomes such it's too, much too heavy a subject that I'm willing to have on my first day back from vacation. But if you would like to participate in a meaningful way and not give anybody's address out and not uh, call anyone a stooge and not uh, you know call anyone names. Um, or present a biased view of the kind of things that we do on the radio. I would love it if you would join our Facebook group, uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. You just go on Facebook and you search M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters, and that's a a forum. It's a group that's meant to be a platform for people who want to discuss the show, uh, politely disagree. I do get disappointed because... The, clearly, these are people that are listening to the show, and then they end up fighting with one another in the most vociferous, personal terms possible. And I don't get it. I, I just, Why can't you take the agree-to-disagree philosophy? So uh, if you would like to be a positive influence, please join our Facebook group. You can also find me on Twitter, at Frank Moreno. I have noticed – and people are going to think I'm crazy – I have noticed – That since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, I am being shadow banned a whole lot less, okay? I, all of a sudden, when this war in Ukraine began, I noticed that my tweets, all of a sudden, they stopped getting likes, stopped getting responses, stopped getting retweets. And I'm I'm talking tweets that have nothing to do with the Ukraine war. And now... Now that Elon Musk is in charge and is giving Twitter amnesty to all these people, except Kanye West, who can't stop praising Hitler. I've noticed that all of a sudden I'm starting to get all those same responses again. It's very interesting. Very curious. Could it be all within my own head? Maybe. Maybe. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. All right. um, So, yeah, we are on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. And you can certainly give us a call at uh, 800-848-9222. If you do join the Facebook group, we will uh, post the songs that we play each and every morning in there as well. So that's a uh, reason for many people to uh, want to participate on uh, in that group. Uh, interestingly enough, I did want to share this with you. Um, there, I'm a fan of Martin Scorsese, right? I, I love... So many of the Martin Scorsese classics. Obviously, uh, Casino is. Casino might be my favorite. Casino is outstanding. Um, If you look at his whole body of work, though Goodfellas, um, The Color of Money, Condune, The Departed. All sorts of great Scorsese pictures. I mean, he is one of the most brilliant directors ever. And as a guy that, if you read his books on uh, on cinema, if you read um, you know any any number of the things that he's written on films or listened to any of the interviews that he's done talking about movies, here's a guy that really just enjoys. Films. Well apparently there is a fake Martin Scorsese film that is making the the rounds. Um I'm gonna tell you about this at the top of the next hour because well, okay, let me tell you about this now. Um there is this fake internet invented movie called Goncharov G O N C H A. R-O-V, with the tagline reading, the greatest mafia film ever made. So there's a – many years back, there was a Tumblr post – Tumblr is, I guess, a social media network, I don't know – that showed an image of a knockoff brand shoe that, in lieu of a branded logo, had stitched inscriptions indicating a fake Martin Scorsese-directed film – titled Goncharov. And while Scorsese has directed multiple films that can arguably attest to that tagline, meaning the greatest mafia film ever made, no tangible evidence is available that can prove the existence of Goncharov, which the Internet has made amicable attempts to gaslight others into believing it's real. So it's a giant practical joke. There's a fan-made poster with Robert De Niro on there. There's a composed theme song. There's fan art all about this film that never existed. But sure enough, the thing to do now on Tumblr and elsewhere is to act like this film, Goncharov, is a real film. But it's not. So don't be fooled if somebody tells you. Now, Scorsese's playing into it. They asked him about this the other day. He said, oh, I I made that film years ago. Meanwhile, he didn't. It's very funny. It's just an elaborate, practical joke that apparently most people are in on. But if you're not, don't be fooled. All right. We'll talk Kirstie Alley and more next hour. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. Other side of midnight. I am Frank Moreno, and I will tell you when I got the news last night that one of my favorite actresses—and I don't really go gaga over actresses—but this was one of my favorites. When I got the word that one of my favorite actresses had passed away, I was absolutely despondent. And you think I—I—you I, don't generally get broken up when a stranger dies. But for me, Kirstie Alley was so much more than just a stranger that I would watch on television. She was someone who I felt like I knew. And that was really her strength as an actor, is she had this presence that transcended the television screen. She was absolutely one of my favorites. Some of you might remember, About a year and a half ago, we were on, we were on this show, and we were doing a show all about celebrity crushes. And I think Lydia Serrano had called in on her way to work. And she said, if you had to pick someone alive who's your celebrity crush, you had to pick. Who would it be? And I said, without missing a beat, Kirstie Ellie. I love and have always loved Kirstie Alley. Not only did I think she was gorgeous, just really a 10 out of 10, including, you know, I know she, like a lot of us, has uh, struggled with her weight, and um, she gained weight, she'd lose weight, she'd gain weight, she'd lose weight. Um, And I thought she was beautiful no matter how she looked. But I really just loved her personality. I loved her spunk. I loved her energy. And whenever I heard her in interviews, she was someone that I um, really felt like I could be friends with that person. The first thing that Kirstie Alley ever did, by the way, keep this in mind today. Because if there's one thing that drove Kirstie Alley crazy, it's people that couldn't say her first name. She – when people would call her Kirsty, or Christie, it drove her crazy. And she – and including big Hollywood stars, she would have to tell them, Kirsty. it rhymes with thirsty. How difficult is that? So keep that in mind when you go to the water cooler, when you're talking about Kirstie Alley today – just do her that one favor. It's Kirsty. Rhymes with Thirsty. It's not Kirsty. It's not Christy. It's Kirsty. So, the first film she ever did is one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. Not one of the greatest Star Trek films ever made. It is one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. A cast that is legendary. People like Ricardo Montalban. People like William Shatner, and of course, people like Kirstie Allen.
0: Well, Mr. Savick, are you going to stay with the sinking ship?
9: Permission to speak candidly, sir. Granted. I don't believe this was a fair test of my command abilities. And why not? Because there was no way to win.
0: And no-win situation is a possibility every commander may face. Has that never occurred to you?
9: No, sir. It has not. She played Lieutenant
1: Savick. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. She's phenomenal in that film. Absolutely phenomenal. To think that was her first film is incredible. And she created that role of Savick. It was done well by the actress that succeeded her, Robin Curtis, because she chose not to come back for the next two films. But she made that role. And to think it was her first role, incredible. Additionally, not only was she brilliant... At it in terms of bringing a character to life from the first scene of that film. But she was just, again, she looked like a Vulcan pinup model. She looked like the kind of person that um, heterosexual men and homosexual women of all ages would fantasize about. She was incredible. And uh, it's very interesting with that film. She you know, she and Shatner are friends now, uh, but they had a great interaction there. She's got some great scenes with Nimoy, great scenes with Shatner especially. She and Shatner did not get along in that film. And uh, some people have always speculated that uh, she and Shatner had some sort of a romance going on. Not true at all. They did not even like each other. In fact, um, now, Kirstie Alley, by her own admission... At that time in her life, she was a young woman at the time. So she was 71 when she died. That was about 40 years ago. So she was, in her, she was in her 20s. She was very into drugs, very into drugs, very into partying, very into alcohol. She would go out every night and party and do cocaine and get drunk and show up not really prepared. Now, you, you see how Shatner acts with people. You heard him recently on an interview we played. He can be a little acerbic. Can you imagine when this is a film that he's the star of and this is a person that's never acted before? So she and Shatner were like oil and water in that picture. And Shatner would give her a hard time for not being prepared. And he would try to like psych her out. Now, and again, I want to stress that they patched whatever differences they had up and were friends after that. But he would try and psych her up and – uh, she would struggle to remember the line, and Shatner would just snap at her, "What's the line? What's the line? What's the line? What's the line? What's the line?" And needless to say, that didn't help. He even just—you just think of the ego of William Shatner, and I love him. He made Kirsty Alley hire an acting teacher for that film, uh, his acting teacher, from what I from what I've heard her say, and uh, apparently, they this acting tutor that she hired. Would was so weird, very new age. He would make Kirstie Alley cut out magazine pictures that represented her character and would make her do all sorts of weird animal noises. It was very bizarre uh, hearing her tell the story. But anyway, um, Kirstie Alley married her high school sweetheart at 20 years old, but divorced a few years later. Much to the chagrin of... Of her overprotective mother. See, so much of what Kirstie Alley did, the drugs, acting as a profession, uh, her relationships with men, was a reaction to her, her mother. See, her mom had been molested, Kirstie Alley's mother, and it informed her views on parenting. She kept a very tight leash on Kirstie, who naturally rebelled like crazy. So she gets into cocaine. Because it made her feel, in her own words, extroverted and peppy. And the first time she tried it, she announced to whomever would listen, I am doing this every day for the rest of my life. She becomes essentially a cocaine addict. And obviously that didn't work out. So do you know what saved her from the throes of drug addiction? It was Scientology. A friend came to town And turned Kirstie on to Scientology as a way to curb the urge to do cocaine. Because, you know, say what you want about the Scientologists. They have helped a lot of people with drug addiction. And so she reads L. Ron Hubbard's book, Dianetics. And she reads it and she is just enthralled. By the end of the book, she thinks this is either the world's biggest sham or the world's biggest discovery. So she moves to California to figure that out. She'd been from Kansas and she appeared on the match game and uh, with Gene Rayburn. That was the first thing that she did even before Star Trek two. And so um, it was very interesting. She also appeared on some other game shows, password plus, and she describes her profession on those game shows, both match game and uh, password plus as an interior designer. And um, in 1981, the year after she moved to California, there was an automobile incident with a drunk driver that killed her mother and left her father seriously injured. And I think that really did leave a gaping hole in her entire life. So... um then she gets her role on one of the most iconic television shows of all time. It happens to be one that my wife and I are watching now, and we're in the prime of the Kirstie Alley years. We are in season 10 out of 11 seasons, and she is phenomenal on this show as she plays Rebecca Howe.
11: All the, all the charm, all the warmth. Where's Dave? Dave? My muse. <laughs> <laughs>
9: I set him free. If he really loves you, he'll come back.
1: She was an instant hit. The chemistry that she had with Ted Danson, who played Sam Malone, was great. And initially, when she got her role on Cheers, remember what happened? Shelley Long left, and uh, she was uh, Shelley Long was the Diane character, and she and Ted Danson had great chemistry. And she agreed to do Cheers because she thought she agreed to do it for one year because she thought it would make her more palatable as a romantic comedy leading lady. She signed a one year contract and something happened with that show that never happens. The ratings got better. A main character, Shelley Long, Diane, Diane Chambers leaves. Rebecca Howe replaces her. Played by Kirstie Ellie, the ratings got better. And so she negotiates a raise for her second season that's five times her original salary for the first. And you know what? It's money well deserved.
9: the justice of the peace before we can change our minds. We're a little bit crazy, aren't we? Yeah, hey,
11: She's a whole lot crazy, and I'm not at all. That averages out to just a little.
1: <laughs> and you know what's interesting watching that show now, because the first time I've really watched it since it was on, is seeing how her character evolved over the years. When she first started on that show, and keep in mind, it is big shoes to fill, filling in for a main character like uh, Diane she was very in control. She was very tough. She was very organized. She was the boss. And then gradually her character shifts and then she becomes sort of a total mess. And then she is just fun-loving and good-humored. And then she combines sort of elements of all three of those. That character really evolved because of Kirstie Alley's portrayal of Rebecca Howe.
11: Uh, sweetheart... I'll just be over here.
1: Okay,
9: hubby. Don't you stop loving me. (laughs) i married a plumber. (laughs) I'm the wife of a plumber. We're going to have a whole bunch of little plumbers. And the horrible part of it is that
1: too good for me. <laughs> At that um, running theme of the difficulties in Rebecca's love life was integral to the plot of Cheers. And it really made the last six seasons of the show in a way that, um, you know, it's funny uh, on um, on Facebook a few months ago, I just posted three words. Rebecca actually it's about a year ago. Rebecca or Diane. And to Almost to a person, people said, Rebecca, Rebecca, Rebecca. And you can easily understand why. And there were a lot of things that I admired about Kirstie Alley, beyond her acting ability, beyond her looks, but the decisions that she made about certain things. For instance, she, if you look at her eyes, she did not have the typical eyes of a Hollywood actress. Most people that have those eyes. The un, under her eyes, it almost looks like bags under her eyes. They would have that done, plastic surgery and so forth. Kirstie Alley said no, not not having it done. And and it, she turned out to be very smart because that kind of became her trademark, and people knew her as that. Uh, she was on David Letterman's show in 1993 talking about why Cheers was coming to an end.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Cheers. What do you think about this? How did you feel about it when you heard it? Why is, why is it ending? Because it's still in the top 10 every week.
9: It's ending because Ted is old. <laughs> Ted dancing is too His old. His hands aren't steady anymore. He can't pour those drinks. <laughs>
0: That's a shame. I didn't realize sad. that. Yeah, it's it, is, sad. it is. It is very, very sad. How did you feel about it when you first realized things uh, were going to go away?
9: I felt very sad. Yeah. And I spent Christmas crying. And so I, um, I came up with this plan, though. I thought, you know, wh- why do I have to be the effect of this? I'll rally. I'll, I'll go back and I'll pitch the idea that we come back next season. We do six shows. We go out with style and uh-huh. class, and right. and we don't let the fans down. We don't. We sort of wean ourselves. So I called a meeting, first time I'd done this in six years, of all the actors and the director, and they were sitting there. I had my nice speech down. And I said, um, now look, I think we should do six more shows. I think that it's really important that we... <laughs> that we wean ourselves. <laughs> because I, it was so degrading. <laughs> and they looked at me, it was like some really... It was like a group therapy session where people were saying this literally. Go with it. <laughs> they just thought you were nuts. Is that Let what? Let it was? out. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and they said no. And it was really degrading. And then yeah, I thought, I'm screw sorry. you. People are old. <laughs> <laughs> I am young. I saw and she
1: did. She had she did a lot of great television work after that, a lot of great movies after that. I'd say one show that she did on NBC, and for a while it was part of the Thursday night lineup, uh, Must See TV. I think it was Thursday nights, but it might have well, – they called it Must See TV whenever it was on. It was Veronica's Closet. And the show did not last that long because I guess in that era they were expecting every primetime show on NBC to become this monstrous Seinfeld-esque or Cheers-esque hit, and um, Veronica's Closet was not, but I found it, first of all, she would wear the greatest outfits, which would just, I mean, I couldn't get enough of, but then uh, the show was very funny, and Kirstie Alley herself on Veronica's Closet was terrific.
9: I just hate watching myself on TV. No, you don't. Yeah, I know.
12: (laughs) Like, any, any marriage can be a great romance. Do
9: you believe that? Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, of course, I'm sort of lucky, and I'm really spoiled, because I have the perfect husband.
11: I'm loving this show.
9: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Obviously, um, she, Scientology was a big part of her life. And it's funny. I, um, she was not the character she played on Cheers, Rebecca Howe, was not on any episode of Frasier because the show Frasier, and she was the only Cheers character that wasn't. They all the rest of them all were. Woody, Sam, um, uh, Carla, Norm, they all were. And the one Diane, the one exception was Rebecca. Because as a member of the Church of Scientology, Kirsty Alley opted not to reprise that role because the series was centered on the field of medical psychiatrists. And that's not a big thing with Scientology. And she was the only former Cheers regular not to be on Frasier. So even though she was raised a Methodist, she became a member of the Church of Scientology before she was famous. Lest anyone think you only, they only recruit famous people. And um, she credits Scientology with helping her get through her cocaine addiction. She spent a lot of money on the uh, the Church of Scientology, achieved a very high rank, uh, donated a lot of money to the church, and befriended another guy that was very big with the Church of Scientology. And that's John Travolta, who, of course, was her co-star in the film Look Who's Talking. That's the one where the babies are talking. Well, the human, Bruce Willis is the voice of the baby, but the human leads in that that, that you see on screen are John Travolta and Kirstie Alley. Ow!
9: Okay, okay, this will pass. Oh, watch the head. Wow. Ow! Oh, God! I need some drugs. Slow down your breathing.
5: You're not in an aerobic class. My breathing. You got to calm down. i have to get
1: the exorcist in here. Give me some drugs. No.
9: You don't want
1: drugs. Yes, I do. I'm going to split in two. <laughs> uh, so she and Travolta were super close. And uh, I heard one interview, I think it was on the Howard Stern show, where Kirstie Alley had a big fear of flying at one point. And she would really, she only agreed to fly with John Travolta. And John Travolta wanted to take her, take her in his airplane to help her get over this fear of flying. So they're in the plane and she said, we have to land. I'm too nervous. We have to land. And so what would you do if you're John Travolta piloting this plane? He said, okay, we're going to land. And once he made that decision to land, all of her fears went away. Just knowing that they could land anytime, anytime she was uncomfortable, that helped her get over it. According to what she said. And, um, she had a big problem with uh, Leah Remini for that reason and i think that did play into some of the tensions she had with her her mom her mother felt that scientology was a cult and uh she claims uh, to the you know she claimed until the day she died that scientology was not as bad as people said now leah remini did all sorts of shows and i interviewed her about scientology and uh i think Kirstie Galley was very critical of her and she Blocked her on Twitter and things of that nature. Obviously, in recent years, she had become very well known for two things. One, her politics, and two, her weight. Now, as far as her weight goes, she has admitted that she consumed at one point 8,000 calories per day. And at her heaviest, she had ballooned up to 230 pounds. And she says it wasn't really the food that did her in. It was the Stewart's grape soda, 12 per day. She first lost weight with um, Dancing with the Stars, and then she ultimately became a spokesperson, I think, for either Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig. But uh, she it was she was somebody that dealt with uh, her weight. She did a bunch of other shows uh, at dif- different points in her life. I tried to get her on the show a couple times, but I'll tell you what happened. My really lone interaction with her was last year when uh, she had uh, – Tweeted something and she misapplied the word ancestor. She wrote ancestor when she meant descendant. And um, I politely corrected her. On Twitter, and she was kind enough to retweet my tweet and apologize. That was the lone interaction that we uh, had ever had. But uh, in recent years, she had been increasingly more outspoken about her politics. And she talked about uh, her support for President Trump. This is her on uh, Tucker Carlson's program in uh, 2021.
3: You have effectively endorsed Donald Trump. You don't need to. You don't get anything out of it. Why did you do that?
9: You know, I'm not usually very outspoken about politics, but I I did it because I I feel like he's actually a person who is kind of like me. You know, I'm from the Midwest, and if I was going to run for president, I would just really want to do it to help the country. I wouldn't have any other ulterior motive because I'm not a politician. So I like the idea that some guy comes... In and you know, he's sort of rough and tough. That's okay with me. I, like I said, I'm from the Midwest, we're all rough and tough. And he, I really believe, earnestly has the best interest of this country. And he just, you know, he just wants to make everything better. And he has some good statistics.
1: So, um, I'm gonna miss her. I thought she was an incredible performer and she seemed like a great person. And a lot of the her co stars that worked with her over the years. Seem like um, they seem to bear that out. So condolences to her family. Uh, She's really going to be missed by a wide group of people. If you want to comment, you're certainly welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. And apparently this battle with cancer that she had was very, nobody knew about it, number one. And it was very brief. Uh, They were speculating that it might have just been a few months that she had been battling cancer. It was not a long-term thing. That she was aware of. So it just goes to show you, we see this so often. It could all be over tomorrow. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think, right? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. if you have a comment. Uh, Mike from Parks Unknown. Hello, Mike. Hey, Frank. Back in the saddle again. Absolutely. Um,
14: I'm glad things worked out uh, in Mexico. Thank you. Know, you. Know, and, uh, Thank you. Every time I hear the name Carmine, you know, I think of my dad. Right, mm-hmm. Rest in peace. Um... You know, I was telling Ken before, while I'm on deck, I tuned in, and, uh, well, I called Rita last night about Kirstie Alley. And uh, she was just, you know, she didn't walk in anyone's shadow. Always enjoyed her, uh, you know, her comedy, her optimism. Always upbeat, you know. And um, uh, rest in peace. Uh, When I tuned in earlier on your show, Frank, uh, you're talking about Harry Chapin and cats in the cradle. Um, my kids were born in Winthrop, Mideola. And when Patty, uh, my wife at the time, uh, had my son, it was a C-section and I almost asked for the smelling salts. Long story short, Mm. I go to a bar across from Mideola station along on the railroad and I go in it was just getting ready to close. And, uh, guy says to me, Mike, right? I said, Yeah, yeah. We played uh softball. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I get a drink and what's playing on the jukebox, Cats in the Cradle. <laughs> and I said to myself, I hope that never happens to me. And uh Harry Chapin, um there's a theater uh at Eisenhower Park, it's a band show named after Harry Chapin. And uh that really, you know, that that really got me going. That's when I decided to uh to give a call and just to say hello. And you still you still got it going on, Frank. You know I've, I've listened to many, many shows over the decades. Not all the time, but you. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that your show's a national show and uh, a round of applause. You know, in every
1: way. Well, uh, thank you, Mike. You're very, very kind. I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Tommy, two times in brooklyn Hello, Tommy.
12: Hello, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Um, You know, you talk about Sonia Tall. I mean, that like this lady had some problems being molested and became a drug addict. No, and no, yadda no,
1: no, no. Just to be clear, Kirsty Alley was never molested, at least as far as I know. No, no, her, her, mother. Her, her mother.
12: Right, her mother was molested. Right. right. No, I get it. I don't want to. I don't want to misconstrue anything. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. I was. Uh, you know, I, I've spoken in the past. I'm not. I'm not afraid. I'm a survivor. I'm not a victim anymore. Yes, I was molested as a child, and I became a drug addict as well. And I looked into I looked into a lot of things because I was messed up, and I needed sure. to try to fix myself. So I, Scientology was one of the things I looked at, and it scared the hell out of me, Frank, not for nothing. And then I started hearing more and more stories of it. So I basically steered away from it, and I became more spiritual in a in a in a, in a just a natural way, uh, no religious, no uh, book. I mean, no um, like. Uh, major religions or anything like that but i found um that hmm. if if you want to all the philosophies and stuff for life of the world you can really help yourself with that mm-hmm. and all most religions have a lot of that stuff in it so it's just a matter of finding your right um mixture your right concoction of whatever you need to do to try to get yourself better
1: yeah and uh, um, uh no tommy i appreciate you as always sharing uh your story Uh, Thank you. I want to be clear. I'm not sitting here, you know, endorsing Scientology or anything like that. If that's your thing, great. I mean, a lot of the things that I've heard about Scientology, they do give me some pause. But I think um, the fact that Kirstie Alley uh, indicated that um, Scientology was such a big part of her beating drugs and then became such a big part of her life for decades, you know, I think it's worth mentioning. But, uh, no, I, I have no idea. There's all sorts of people that are able to win their battles with drug addiction or substance abuse with, uh, with, without Scientology or maybe even without any religious intervention at all. So, yeah, I'm not saying Scientology is the, the bee's knees or anything like that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Antonio is in Panama. Hello, Antonio
8: hi hi hello everybody um guys y'all y'all really uh, um uh, you move me uh, you move me to tears i've i've listened to all that you just said and i had to call and chime in real quickly that woman just incredible for all the years just for all the years yes
1: absolutely
8: you know it it's it it it, it, it's and I'm still crying right now. I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm really, I apologize. Yeah, no,
1: no, no. No need to apologize, really
8: Antonio. Apologize. You see, as one would say, who knew? She made me laugh. She made me cry. She, 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 she was endearing. And yes, I saw the movie where her, you know, with the Bruce Willis thing as the baby and all of that. But it's just one of those things where um, as a performer myself, you know it paid the rent and bought diapers yeah
1: exactly exactly and you know and thank you antonio you know she was in a great movie with uh, patrick swayze called north south years ago and uh, she became very close with uh, patrick swayze and i think it does say something about her that she developed such a fondness with all of her co-stars, John Travolta, Patrick Swayze, Ted Danson. And um, I did not see one of the more recent things that she did a couple of years ago on TV land, uh, a show called Kirstie. Uh, But um, that sounded pretty funny. I'd heard a couple of appearances she did promoting that, but it was canceled after one season. So maybe it wasn't as good as the concept made it sound. So, um, You know, again, uh, uh, why do we mourn when a celebrity dies? I don't know. Um, It feels to some extent maybe like someone that we know, even though we've never met them, is gone. And it certainly seems that way with Kirstie Alley. It's sad. It is. All right. Um, We're going to do the $1,000 minute in just a moment. If you want to be the seventh caller, you heard it from Mike earlier. Mike won a couple of weeks ago. He has been paid. He has already got a plan for how he is spending that money. If you want to be the contestant on today's edition of the $1,000 Minute, be the seventh caller now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do it, you'll be $1,000 richer. Simple as that.
0: Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Frank Marano.
1: Walking on sunshine. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Without further ado, it is time for us to try and give someone, one lucky, lucky person, an opportunity to win some money. By answering 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, it is time for.
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank
1: Marano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. All right. uh, Let us meet today's contestant, Lenny in Fort Lauderdale. Hello, Lenny.
14: What do you say, Frank? How's it going?
1: It's going great. It's going great, Lenny. How are things down there in Fort Lauderdale?
15: Everything's fine, my friend. Everything's fine.
1: All right. Are you an original New Yorker? I am. Oh, I am inside Queens. All right. Well, one of many New Yorkers that made the Floridian hop. Our very own Gabby Thanks. Lopez will be among you soon. Um, Lenny, you've heard this segment before, right? Yes, I have. All right. So we'll get started if you're ready. Uh, if you get a question right, we're just going to move on. You get one wrong, you'll hear a buzzer, okay? Yeah, let's try. Be, okay. be kind. Uh, absolutely, these are pretty good questions. I feel like you have a, you're in a good position. Man. What what holiday takes place on December twenty fifth? Christmas. What Seattle-based coffee chain is currently led oh, by Marx. Howard Schultz? What Nazi dictator was recently praised by Kanye West? Hitler. What country did I just return from yesterday? Mexico. What museum houses the Mona Lisa? The Louvre. What novelist wrote *The Adventures of Tom Sawyer*? Uh, Mark Twain. What is the next prime number after seven? Seven. I don't know. Fourteen. Ah, no. It's a, good. You're doing well. You got up to question seven. It's eleven. It's eleven. <laughs> A prime number is a, a number that's only divisible by one in itself. So fourteen, obviously, seven goes into four, fourteen. Uh, but uh, Lenny, I'm going to put you on hold. You did well, and uh, give Kenneth right, your buddy. information. We're going to send you something nice, okay? All right, thank you, thank you, Lenny. All right, he was doing well. I was, uh, I thought he might, uh, thought he might win today, actually, because he was at a good pace too. Uh, but yes, prime numbers are numbers that are not divisible by anything else. So 14, obviously, divisible by 7. 8, divisible by 4. 9, divisible by 3. 10, divisible by 5. So then the next prime number is 11. You know, Henry in Manhattan, who called this show before, I first met Henry about, 17, about 18 years ago, maybe 19 years ago. He was doing this big push for a mm-hmm. uh, national prime number day. And what he said, the New York Sun did a big article about it at the time, and he did this interview with – it was on TV at the time, Morano Vision. He did this interview with me. And what he said was his hope was that they would be able to um, use National Prime Number Day to teach people about prime numbers. And I thought it was maybe kind of a silly idea at the time, but the more I – have conversations like the one that we just had, the more I realize that, no, you really need some sort of widespread education when it comes to prime numbers. So um, I mentioned when last I was with you that my computer that I'd gotten from my previous employer was kaput. But I had removed the hard drive for from it And I had to return it to my old employer. So, Obi Murray, who helped remove the hard drive the last time, he came back in right after the show. And I'm sure this was high on his list of things to do on a Thursday morning. Is come here at 5.30 in the morning. And he helped me reinstall the hard drive. And it's funny, Curtis Lee happened to be in the room with us at the time. And we're both trying, Obi and I are both trying to explain to Curtis the situation, which makes exactly no sense. So we go through this whole rigmarole. And Obi says, you know, for all the time that we've spent talking about this, working on this, trying to figure out a solution, we're in exactly the same place that we were a month and a half ago. And sure enough, that is exactly what uh, occurred. So then I I brought it back to my old employer in the hopes that when I was, you know, in tune to their Internet or whatever, that I would be able to uh, access my data on there. And uh, sure enough, that appears not to be uh, not not yet to be the case. They shipped it out to the computer that I brought to them to their central office for repair and uh it's in shipping now so um that's that's where they were they couldn't get it to boot either so they're they they have folks paid to work on this and they're going to see if they can get the tablet uh, information off it so it is it is what it is um i am way behind on new year's eve, eve stuff today i have made some progress on thursday with booking accommodations and starting to plan out this year's honorees and itineraries. I think today, especially because my wife is off from work, will finally be the day that I get to make some progress on this email. So uh, for those of you that have been holding out for that um, New Year's Eve email, uh, that will in all, hopefully come within the next 24 to 48 hours. If you want to be included on my email list, just shoot me a line at uh, at. Uh, frankm Morano at wabcradio.com We're also on Twitter at Frank Morano. So that's uh, that's what I'm in store for today. Alright, uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame coming up in a few minutes. If you're new to the program, that's where you get to be heard for 15 seconds. Say whatever you want within reason. 800-848-9222 That's 800-848-9222 You know, I got such a great email the other day asking about wind chimes. And I was initially going to use it for Ask Frank Anything. And then I was going to use it for email. But it's too good. And I have been workshopping this wind chime discussion with all sorts of people. And I think we're actually, brace yourself, I think we're actually going to do a segment on Wind Chimes tomorrow. I know it sounds weird. I know it's going to sound boring. I think it's going to be more exciting than you probably realize. So, that's where we are. Alright, uh, 15 seconds of fame coming up in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. 800 848 7 open lines.
0: Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Marano.
1: Entertaining Facebook comments that I came across yesterday was from uh, Gino from uh, Brooklyn, who actually was in studio here when we did our panel for the other side of uh, Governor's Island. And he said that he's not a fan of podcasts, but he said that listening to this show on um, one and a half times speed, it made the Andy B theme song that you just heard there much more enjoyable. And I, I'm cleaning that up a, a great deal more than he did. He used much more colorful uh, language. So I still do discourage everybody from uh, listening to this show on uh, on one and a half speed. Today is the um, anniversary of the ratification of the 13th Amendment. That's right. The one that ended slavery. That's a big one. That's a big one. No, nobody... You stop 1,000 people on the street today with no computer, no phone in their hand. You stop 1,000 people on the street today. Random. There's not one person who could tell you what the 11th Amendment does. Not one. I guarantee it. Um, 13th Amendment, that's a big one. That's one people know. Uh, a fine film about the 13th Amendment is uh, is Lincoln. Whatever you think of Lincoln, it's worth seeing just for Daniel Day-Lewis' performance. Is it 100% historically accurate? No. But it's mostly historically accurate, which when it comes to cinema, I think that's the most that a lot of us can can hope for. You know, I mentioned this um, internet rabbit hole that I ended up going down the other day, and so I end up thinking about my old friend, Jay Diamond. Uh, Jay Diamond, Jay and I are still in touch, um, but Jay is one of the most talented talk show hosts of all time, and... I went back and I end up reading this New York Times article that was written about him back in 1996. And uh, I forget what it's called. The headline was something like The Angriest Man in in Talk Radio, right, or something like that. And it's an interesting article. Yeah, that's, what, that's exactly what it's called. The Angriest Man in Talk Radio, January 28, 1996. And Sharpton, Al Sharpton, is critical of Jay Diamond in this article. So it got me thinking um, that Sharpton had gone on with Curtis and Lisa Sliwa back in the 90s, and he had claimed that Jay Diamond's name wasn't really Jay Diamond. He said that he made up the name Jay Diamond and that his name was actually Ira Schwartz or something. And I was trying to find any sort of article that was written about that interview that Curtis and Lisa had done with Al Sharpton. And I couldn't find it, but then it led me down a whole Curtis rabbit hole and a whole Sharpton rabbit hole. Very interesting. And so I, I end up doing a, a deep dive into Sharpton, and most of the stuff about Sharpton we all know, right? The Tawana Brawley, the Freddy's Fashion Mart, the good, the bad, the ugly. we I, It's not a lot of new stuff. The endorsement of Aldo Mato, the run for U.S. Senate against Abrams, the acquittals, the this, the that, the stabbing. No need to rehash all that. There is one thing about Al Sharpton that I did not know, and I'm betting you didn't know it either. Do you know who Al Sharpton's father is? Al Sharpton's father is Alfred Sharpton Sr. I have a feeling I'm going to blow your mind with this, okay? Al Sharpton Sr., was a very wealthy businessman. He owned 23 buildings in Brooklyn. Very successful. Al Sharpton Sr. left his mother, left Al Sharpton's mother, Ada. Ada's, Ada had been married before. And Al Sharpton's father left his mother, for Al Sharpton's half-sister. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Sure enough, Al Sharpton had a half-sister who was 18 years old, and Sharpton's father left the family, left his wife, and ran off with his 18-year-old stepdaughter, and they had a child together. I mean, it's like Woody Allen on steroids. It's really wild, and uh, I. The, so you had this the Sharptons essentially with this wealthy or at least upper middle class family, and this his mother would get a new Cadillac every year, and then she went to essentially having to be a um, a maid just to make ends meet. It was really interesting to learn that. So um, that's that. All right, uh, not, that's not really relevant other than the fact that I thought it was interesting. The fact that uh, I, I you never hear that about Sharpton, do you? Uh, I, I don't remember hearing that. 800-848-9222. It's time for
0: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of fame. fame.
1: Let us say hello to Mike in New Jersey.
0: Uh, good morning, Frank. I'm going to break some of your rules.
10: I'm calling out some stooges. Mo, Larry, and Curly, all stooges. Oh, yeah, and Shemp, he was also a stooge. But only sometimes.
1: Tommy.
12: Okay, we got um, uh, the uh, Rebecca, uh, Carla. I mean, uh, Rebecca and Diane in the movie. I mean, she is. I would have picked Carla. God bless everybody. Stay safe.
1: Ellie in Maryland. Hi, Frank. That was interesting about Al Sharpton. I want to
5: comment about Kirstie. She had chutzpah, but she didn't know President Trump. He, he wasn't for the country, as his niece says. He's a psychopath. He's narcissistic. He's self-centered. He was out for himself all along. He never should have been president. David in the Bronx. Yes, if
1: you accumulate 300
7: million Murano points, you get a choice of either the Battleship New Jersey or a box of chocolate that Frank's been saving since 1995. Uh, Ray. Frank, great analysis of Curtis's radio talents. Can we have Steve from Manhattan charity boxing event against Mike Forrest Gump, Lake George, who shows up everywhere,
6: in a pancreatic cancer of charity event for
1: Bernie, I, you know, I think that would be interesting. I don't know how many people would show up for that. Honestly, I, I mean, I think if it was, you know, air talents, that might be a better, more interesting thing. Thank you. It's a good thought, though, Ray. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens.
12: Hi, is this a stupid suggestion or not? to use uh, Kirstie Alley's endorsement of Trump, and some people that are wavering might, to honor her memory, go for Trump. Is that possible, or is that just stupid?
1: You know, um, look, Charles, thank you. Whatever works, works, right? I don't think there's anybody that would be on the fence about voting for Trump and say, you know, now that Kirstie Alley died, I'm going to honor her by voting for Trump. I don't see that happening, right? I think you're either for Trump, in, in most cases. Well, you're not, right? Uh, I mean, look, there is some gray area, but I don't think Kirstie Alley's passing has anything to do with that. 800-848-9222. Danny is in Oyster Bay.
10: Jay Diamond had Al Sharpton on his guest. Bill O'Reilly, Donald Trump, were friends with Al Sharpton, and Roger Pebbles, Roger Stone, made a contrib- contributions to Sharpton's charity. So, folks... Uh, let's let's pull the mask off the whole show, there, baby, right there. Pull the mask off the whole show; they're all in on it.
1: And yet, Danny, last word.
10: Go, be can and go.
1: There you have it. All right, uh, we will let uh, Danny slash Steve from Manhattan have the uh, have the last word. There, he is a fascinating individual. Fascinating. I've invited him here. I would love to have him in studio. The kind of interview that I would do with Steve from Manhattan would be. It would be the, the the stuff of talk radio history books. It would really be something. All right, um, you want to stay in touch with me? You could do so, Frank at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank M O R A N O at WABCRadio.com. dot com. I'll tell you what I was really interested in: this story of this this guy who was who fell off a cruise ship and who was essentially. Um, Lost at sea for for hours. Have you have you seen this story? I mean, it's really interesting. This fellow was on a cruise and he falls off and survives. The Carnival Valor was only at sea for a day when calls came over the loudspeaker that a, a passenger should report to customer service. This 28-year-old American citizen was reported missing by his family. It was Thanksgiving, and they did an all-out search for him. He's stuck in these shark-infested waters, and he survived. He survived. He was able to swim for hours. It's really amazing, and seems pretty healthy. Really interesting. Hey, uh, this has been a lot of fun. It is great to be back. I'll be back tomorrow, same bad time, same bad station. Until then, Frank Moreno, good day.